You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. A very good morning to you. Welcome along to the AM this Tuesday morning. We're with you all the way until half past nine. As ever, if you want to get involved with us, you can uh, just tweet us, at off the ball, or you can leave the hashtag OTBAM on Twitter or leave a comment for us on whatever stream you're watching it this morning. And a reminder, of course, that if you want to experience this as just a radio show, then you can now do that over at our shiny new website, offtheball.com. Uh, head over there, log on, hit the play button, and uh, you will be able to minimise it and go about your day-to-day business with, the, uh, with us in your earballs. How are you on? Yeah, not too bad. How are you? Very good. Is it a sense of karma that you got the worst Super Bowl of all time for taking the day after off? No. I think it is. I, I had other stuff to do. Okay, fair enough. Did you enjoy it? Um, I don't know. It wasn't like... It was disappointing that it wasn't the all-time classic that we've had for the last couple of years. But there's been other Super Bowls where it's been over after the first quarter. And so this was better than that. Yeah. Like, it was close. It was tense. We thought two years ago it was over after the first quarter, or certainly after the first half. Yeah, but that was an, that was literally an all-time classic. No one's ever come back the way that they did um, in that one. But if you think back to like um, uh, the Seahawks killing the Denver Broncos, there's a safety from the first snap, and it's like, oh, this game's over. Yeah, I, lo- I lost. Uh, that, that was kind of my last foray into American football betting when I uh, backed the Broncos that evening. Uh, the, what we all want to know this morning, though, is how the wings went down. Amazing. That's the yeah. only reason I brought this up. Amazing, yeah. They were good, weren't they? Yeah, they looked fine, yeah. But you put sesame seeds on your... Uh, What's wrong with wings. that? Uh, just, just very notionsy, isn't it? No. No? No. Is, is, is that I like, got a lot of shit for that, is actually. Is that normal behaviour? I got a for, lot of shit for the sesame seeds. Like, for, uh, uh, you know, uh, a middle-aged Irish man? What? To put sesame seeds on his wings? <laughs> if you've got sesame seeds, why wouldn't you put them on? What's uh, wrong with them? Well, you know... It's, come on, uh, come on. Just the, Why shouldn't we have notions when it comes to cooking? Just uh, Why don't you be ambitious? Were you like Salt Bay putting on the sesame seeds like that? Yeah, bouncing off my, <laughs> off my kind of weeny little forearm. Uh, that, that's, uh, that, yeah. that, that is the, the image you all want this morning. Um, so c- congratulations on the wings. They did look good, to be fair. Literally nobody asked me for the um, recipe, but here goes if you want it. Uh, everything that you have in your cupboard, feck it all in, and then um, cook them slowly, and that's it. Specifically? Soy sauce. Ginger, garlic. There was some other stuff. Oh, maple syrup, a must. Otherwise, they don't get sticky. And then just to finish it off, a bit of um, I probably left some stuff out. Oh, buffalo sauce or um, whatever that's. We had some. I put it in. Right. Okay. Basically, just sugar. You should write a cookbook with all these specifics you got going on. Yeah. There you go. Um, I don't know. It wasn't particularly enjoyable. Like. It's very unenjoyable, in fact. Yeah, well, at the same time, you are watching something that's amazing. Like, I remember loads of people giving out about the Kilkenny-Waterford game when Kilkenny hammered Waterford. Uh, but, like, at the same time, that was the greatest performance ever by that Kilkenny team. That was the peak of the power of the greatest hurling team of all time. And this is, like, the weirdest achievement by any couple in sports history that Belichick and Brady are still able to do this at this stage of their careers and actually getting better at it that's weird that's mad like American football is rigged so that everybody makes the same amount of money roughly by uh, giving all the crappy teams the opportunity to sign good players or to draft good players and in that era they've managed to win six Super Bowls and appear in nine it's ridiculous yeah no it it is and that's how they've kind of 
just kind of cemented themselves in complete greatness where you do have a sense of parity amongst teams, but then sometimes a genius comes along and changes that whole sense of parity immediately. Uh, like, I, I, I don't know, I, it's fine watching that and viewing that as, as in the season as a whole, but in the context of one game, it's... Yeah, if, exactly. that's, if that's the only game you watched all year, you're like, what the hell is everybody talking about? Uh, but if you've watched all season and you wanted to see what was going to happen when this superstar kid came up against... He just looked so shocked, McVeigh. It was a great shot with like two minutes left when they're still in it. And he's just basically spaced out on this like a thousand yard stare. And you're like, uh, uh, you, you know, the game's on? It's still on. You can still win. Get your shit together. Um, and then also seeing somebody be a rabbit in the headlights the way uh, Jared Goff was. That's interesting stuff. You see that sometimes. No, it is. It is. It's, uh, Look, it wasn't a great game. And there's no point in defending the game. I'm not defending the game. There is something incredible about a quarterback crumbling. It's it is it's like a watching a tennis player crumbling. It's it is sort of uh, you're bearing your soul quite a lot. It, it is like a solo sport in yeah. a certain way, and that's what happened to Goff. And like McVay obviously kind of owned up afterwards and says, "I got this badly wrong." And kind of his words afterwards would suggest that this is a guy who's going to bounce back from this. He's 33. He's yeah. he's, got, he's got eight more years until he's Tom Brady's age. Never mind uh, getting to Bill Belichick's level of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how easy because that uh, like very few teams make it back. It's true, and there's been so many examples of very, very good teams with very, very good quarterbacks who just haven't come back to that level whatsoever over the last five years. And they have a load of players who are going to hit free agency this summer and the cap space. You know, so you, you go all in. They might be able to keep everybody for one more season, but after that, it's going to be trouble. So maybe, maybe they're back. I don't know. But that'll be good to watch. Like, at least there's, uh, you know, a bad competitive game is way better than a blowout where one team is just beating the other team. What about that Kilkenny blowout that you just mentioned? But that wasn't just a blowout. That was the absolute... That was like... Uh, the 1970 Brazil team beating Italy 4-1. That's the same magnitude of that. That's not. Uh, it's not Dublin. I'm trying to think of any other blowouts that we've seen in recent years. I don't know any of those FA Cup finals, which I can't remember. Just finished 4-0 to somebody. What, Brazil, Germany. Of those World Cup semi-final. Um. Well, that was an amazing game, wasn't it? Yeah, it was incredible. Like that's what I'm saying. That there is, uh, and it appeals to the blows. I agree with you about Kilkenny and Waterford, but not in the Super Bowl, where like it's only a, it's a mediocre team beating the other team because one team chokes. Like Denver basically blew out the Carolina Panthers. Both teams were really crap. Yeah, that was that was good defense as well that day from from Denver, wasn't it? That kind of yeah. helped them to to keep uh, one side of the scoreboard down. I don't know. I would have preferred a high scoring game, even if it yes. was even if it was weighted in one direction. Well, uh, on, on something like Well, if it was 42-6 or 40... Uh, no, thanks. That was pointless. I don't know. I would have enjoyed it. All right. Uh, are we talking about Liverpool choking? We can do. Um, I, like, did you watch this last night? Oh, it's a good bit of it, yeah. Yeah. They, like, the idea of Liverpool choking now is obviously a realistic possibility. And I've kind of gone full circle on my view of Liverpool from wanting them to do this thing to finally end the 29-year wait for a Premier League title or for a league title. And... Now I've kind of got to the point where I'm not sure if I want them to do this anymore. That part of me was cheering when that equaliser happened for West Ham last night. That part of this is a little bit self-inflicted. You were making the point before we came on air about the whole Joe Gomez situation and the lack of uh, cover in positions uh, at the back four for Liverpool. The point right I was back, making was that Joe Gomez is back. Uh, he's going to be back any day now. He's going to be back any day now was the official line that we've been hearing for three weeks. The whole way through the transfer window. Oh, it doesn't matter. Joe Gomez is coming back. And now it turns out he's having surgery. This is bullshit. Can't manage a club like this. Get a replacement in. Can't buy a replacement because it's not how we do things around here. We buy, we, we buy our players 18 months in advance. That's how we go shopping. It's like, okay, fair enough. But when are you actually going to be 
in a position to win a title as clearly as you are right now. I mean, maybe Liverpool always feel like they're going to be under club in a position to compete for the title. But right now, they have the winning of the title. All they need is a good fallback and somebody to help aid the defence. Guys, I don't know. That was nonsensical not to buy somebody when they knew that this was coming and that he wasn't responding to treatment the way he was supposed to be responding. Yeah, I'd agree with you. It's a huge oversight from Jurgen Klopp's part, but also the idea that Jurgen Klopp knows as well as anybody how close to perfect you have to be to win a title. I mean, he had to do it a couple of times in Germany. You had to be close to perfect to beat Bayern Munich. You had to have an absolutely outstanding season. He would have foreseen this issue. He knew this issue was there. I'm sure he knew that Joe Gomez's injury was not the six weeks that it was originally predicted when he went down injured in the first half of the season. He knew this thing was going to get serious. He voluntarily got rid of Nathaniel Klein from the football club, which I just don't understand. Would he be doing a better job than, than James Milner right back? Maybe not, but the thing is, James Milner would then be playing in midfield, and maybe someone like Naby Keita wouldn't be starting. That being said, I, I see Keita as getting a lot of flack for his performance last night. I'm not entirely sure was he actually the worst performer in that Liverpool midfield. I'm not saying he was good, but and defensively there's huge question marks about him, uh, and certainly around a 50 million quid price tag uh, on his head. But overall, I'm not sure if people can just say, oh, well, Kate is playing and uh, Wijnaldum's not around, therefore that's why Liverpool didn't get all three points there. I think there's just a, a, an overall sense of underperformance. You look at someone like Roberto Firmino at the moment. Was that his worst game in a Liverpool? Sorry, not, maybe not in a Liverpool shirt, but certainly this season. I, I, I think last night it was, it was right up there in terms of his worst performances this year. Uh, Digger, good morning to you. It says, um, pressure for sure, but it's injuries. Trent Alexander-Arnold, Lovren, Gomez, Wijnaldum, Henderson. It exposes the squad compared to City. When your options are Lallana, midfield or Mares, it speaks for itself. It's hard to see Liverpool winning it from here. City like a machine, too good. This is the Liverpool fans talking themselves into the, ah, it's fine if we lose this from here. It's okay, we're up against the machine. And sure, we've, we've already conceded the fact that we're not going to win it and somehow made peace with it. But no, that's not what's going to happen. It's going to be the longest, most torturous, drawn-out collapse. In I think Liverpool are going to go right to the end of the season with this. I think that there will be some kind of comeback. Yeah, like this is obviously their blip. We've been wondering when it was going to happen, and we're we're living in the blip right now. Enjoy the moment, if anybody out there hates uh, Liverpool particularly. Like the the idea was as well though at the, at the start of the season, it was going to become not at the start of the season, actually a month ago, that this was going to become one of the all-time great. Premier League title races, maybe not just in terms of drama, but in terms of pure quality. You had the brilliant, beautiful football of Liverpool, the chaotic football at times that was leading to big wins, up against a less chaotic but similarly attractive style of football from Manchester City, packed with talents, huge amounts of money spent on both squads, uh, going toe-to-toe at the top of the Premier League title. Of course, if you, if, you, if you like parity in the Premier League, as you mentioned with the NFL earlier on, this was not going to be a good year for parity because the top six were going to pull away and then the top two were going to pull away from everybody else subsequently. And now in the last week, that idea has changed dramatically. I mean, Manchester City losing last week to Newcastle. Liverpool drawing two games back-to-back. Manchester City you know, stumbling for a small amount of moments against a poor enough Arsenal team on Sunday as well. The invincibility aura of Manchester City and Liverpool has certainly worn off. And it's hard to know if that's going to make the Premier League title race better or if it's going to make it worse. But certainly the idea that it's going to be two 100-point tallies going up against one another, I think that's not going to happen. Uh, Daniel Harris is going to join us in about 10 minutes' time to talk about this. Obviously, he's been calling the fact that he didn't think Liverpool were going to be that good over the course of the rest of the season for the last few weeks. So uh, his time is now. We'll talk to him, as I said, in about 10 minutes' time. Here, let's go back to this, though. It's uh, Ireland-England from the weekend um, through the prism of Billy Vinopola. Here he is talking to the press after the game. Will O'Callaghan was in the middle of the scrum. Have a look. To come to such a fortress where England have struggled in the past and win and win by a decent margin, what can that mean moving forward? Um, you know, 
in the week about praise making you weak, um, which is why I keep saying it's very, very important that we stay grounded. Uh, I know it's the first win, um, I mean, first game. So hopefully, um, you know, we can put out a great performance against France. Uh, one, we can hold our heads up high. Um, you know, it would be a great occasion to be back at Twickenham. You know, that's probably my best memory is missing out on that, is, is playing at Twickenham in front of a home crowd. Billy, just in terms of the performance, was it a very conscious decision to go and press them as high up the pitch as you did because you know, it directly resulted in a couple of tries? I think you saw in the autumn, um, you know, it's, it's not just pressing from the outside, but everyone coming together. Um, and I thought we did that uh, amazingly well today. Um, you know, we, we were really together there as a unit, not just um, forwards, but backs and forwards. Um, and we put them uh, under a lot of pressure. You know, Ireland tend not to chase a lot of games, so um, I guess we ask them questions that maybe they haven't been asked before, and that's kind of where we um, got our successes from. It's a great point. We're not very good at coming back from behind. Uh, if so, obviously Sexton scores the drop goal in France, and everyone goes, "Oh, we came from behind that game," but like that was we were behind for about a wet week or a wet minute. We haven't been behind at half time and beaten good opposition in a very long time. Somebody was um, tweeting about it at the weekend. I think it was eighteen or nineteen games, but the last time we did it was against Italy in twenty eleven. Was the last time we came from behind at half time and um, and won a game. It's like, okay, well, can we find somebody really good? So we've actually come from behind and beaten in a big game. And uh, I don't remember that. So, I mean, you know, it seems fairly easy, but get a lead on Ireland and it's not quite game over, but it's pretty close to it. It seems that way. It's also quite demoralising watching, isn't it, when we're getting battered like that. It's fantastic when it's going well and when the wheels are turning and you're like, there is nothing that this opposition can do to stop us, even though they know what's going to happen. But when the wheels come off a little bit and the tables have turned and suddenly it's them knocking at our door consistently and it's like the consistency that we bring to our game is therefore ineffectual because you need to come up with something different. And that something different sometimes uh, is absent when it comes to watching a, a Joe Schmidt team that's struggling in the game. Now the thing is we haven't witnessed this in a long time so it is kind of this unusual feeling of helplessness of, of watching the Irish rugby team. There's a couple of easy options here and, and, and the one that, that has been touted over the last couple of days has been the boot of Johnny Sexton. Why wasn't that utilised a little bit more in behind the English line? And there has to be some sort of realistic explanation for that as to maybe the belief that they had in actually carrying the ball out of their own 22 or in Conor Murray's box-kicking game. But we certainly saw both of those options were failing miserably. Well, listening to Ron McGarrett talk last night, he was talking about how kickers just need a little bit of front foot, a little bit of momentum, anything, so that you can actually feel like you know, you've got a tiny bit of space, and that was never happening. So you're going backwards kicking, it's not going to be particularly effective. And that primarily is the fact that our pack got destroyed. Like, And it wasn't close. It wasn't, you know, they just beat our pack. They absolutely annihilated all of our pack. Mm. Like, did anybody in the pack come out of that with their reputation properly enhanced? Enhanced? Oh, definitely not. Did anybody fully intact? Josh Van der Fleer made a lot of tackles. Yeah, I mean... I would have expected more from him. CJ Sander played with a broken face. Just Is that a reputation enhanced? On the CJ Sander playing with a broken face. How did the medical staff stand over the fact... So his brother-in-law tweeted the fact that he played 60-odd minutes with a broken face, right? So let's assume that the brother-in-law is accurate and that's, that's information that's come directly from CJ Sander because he's standing there in a photograph. What's the point in leaving CJ Sander on with a broken face? Are they saying they didn't know? That this only emerged 
after halftime, they put him back out in the second half with a broken face, right? Yeah, and you can see his face is falling off. There's the tweet. Not the result we wanted, but an incredible experience nonetheless. I'm proud to see just down there playing 62 minutes with two fractures in his cheek and eye sockets. Like, you can see he's, like, growing a second face there almost. It's so broken. How is that the right thing for CJ? Yeah, it doesn't How is it the sense. right thing for the team? Like, where's the duty of care? What, like, at what point do you stand... Because we, we have to trust that rugby is looking after its players, right? They're the ones stepping in and saying, no, 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 you, you, you've got to come off. We've created this bunch of rules to make sure that no matter what... Because we know you want to play. We know adrenaline is going to make you feel like, actually, I'm okay, I'm much better than I am. And then the adrenaline wears off and you're like, ooh, I've got, yeah, I've got two breaks on my face. I don't know. That, that didn't make any sense. Like, get Sean O'Brien on. If he's, if he's that injured, which he was... For his sake, for the team's sake, get him off, no? Yeah, and the change happened eventually anyway, so what did you gain by actually leaving him on? The answer is not a lot. But the potential to have... Do yourself worse, of course, that's much the ...much more question. serious damage. Because, like, I, I mean, I could only imagine the level of pain that you're feeling every time somebody touches your face, and what if they touch your face again? Or imagine a tackle. Yeah. Just the, the impact of that. One of those, or imagine man or two laggy headbutts you... Oh, I mean, that's fine, apparently. Apparently that's in the rules as well. No no siding from Anatulagi is the other um, stuff that came through this morning. So, I don't know. That all doesn't seem to make that much sense. Here's what's coming up for you. Sports pages uh, around about 8 o'clock. We're going to do Liverpool's wobble at 10 past 8. Uh, talking GAA roundup around about 25 past 8. Darren's going to join us at 8.35. And then the uh, Six Nations will go back to it at around about 8.45 this morning. But if there's anything else you'd like to get off your chest for us, or who you think should be selected for Ireland, um, given the amount of injuries that have now been reported after last Saturday, it could be a completely changed team, a completely changed midfield, a completely changed back three. What do you do? Are you picking Henshaw full back again? Well, I think you kind of have to. Are you stuck with it? Are you stuck with the idea that if this experiment is going to fail, at least be 100% sure it's a failing experiment? Does that, is, that, is that like... Or is that a defeatist attitude? Does that make sense? What about, like, trying to work on it, you know, in dribs and drabs as opposed to saying, oh, we could, we could completely tank now, we could, we could actually completely ruin this forever, or we could just do a bit of it sometimes, like, you know, we, or we could do something else. I don't know. The logic that you have to repeat the mistake, if it was a mistake, to make sure that you made the mistake properly, isn't that logical to me? No. But there is... Okay. You're giving I, him another chance to succeed. Is that yes. the... Is that the well, like, exactly. Yeah, fair and enough. There, like, there, was, there was a couple of carries in the first half where you're like, I like this. But at the same time, when he was making those carries, it's like, why can't he do this from a midfield position? It was almost as if midfielder Rob Carney was, or midfielder Robbie Henshaw was coming out to play rather than full-back Robbie Henshaw. And then when full-back Robbie Henshaw was asked to play, mostly against, uh, against the run of play, then things started to get a little bit ugly. So I think when you talk about playing on the back foot and you talk about Johnny Sexton not having the capabilities of actually changing a game when Ireland are on the back foot, I think the same has to go for the full-back. Like what would Rob Kearney have done on Saturday? Would he have made a bit of a difference? Yes, of course he would. Absolutely. Like, of course he would. Two, two tries, probably. The, the one where he shanks I think, the I think it's I think it's hard. Would he uh, have been there to stop the Stockdale spill? Uh, I think so, yeah. I think... Um, like Robbie Henshaw was miles away. Miles away from that. He wasn't even close. And I think that his, his left foot Clearance kick doesn't yeah, get shanked into play, and the rest of the team bears far more responsibility for the defeat than Robbie Henshaw does. But that that didn't work, and like this kind of oh, we have to go with it again because otherwise you're going to ruin Robbie Henshaw's fullback forever. You're not. Like maybe now's maybe you do it 
in the Italy game and you go, well, what would it look like with front football? And then that's where the confidence comes from. Do you think- say, say it goes tits up this time, right? How do you ever recover from that? And what's the point of that? Yeah, yeah, it's a fair point. It's it's a fair point. I, like, I I just feel that there was such a systems failure all around the pitch last week that we didn't get an accurate representation of Robbie Henshaw at fifteen for Ireland. That's a fair point. That's yeah. that's kind of my view on it. Like, the question is: is if Rob Carney is one hundred percent fit and good to go, and Ireland desperately now need to win, why wouldn't you start him? And there, there, there is no answer to that question that is correct because you start your best players in your best position this weekend. The, like the, this idea that we had beforehand of experimentation and we're, you know, trying out different things before the World Cup, is that now out the window as well? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. I, don't think, I think you've got to... Well, but this weekend, it's You're not, going to be forced... Well, so your second row is going to be significantly changed. It looks like um, Dev Toner's gone and... Billy Holland's going to be brought into the squad. Your back row is going to be different. Um, obviously, Cesar Sanders gone. So uh, what happens there? Do you look to... Change the balance of the makeup of that. I don't know. Um, is anybody undroppable at this point? Tyke Furlong's undroppable. After that, anybody else? Yeah, yeah Tyke Furlong's. When you talk about people who kept their reputations intact um, from the. Like the one thing that wasn't actually mentioned yesterday, we, like Alan Quillam was going on about the referee yesterday, uh, was, was if we talk about the other prop in the front row in terms of Keane Healy. Like, are we, have we spoken about that try at all? That uh, Ireland scored. There was a suggestion. There was a hand underneath it. Yeah, uh, like I, I just, I just don't understand the misery that we're showing, or the disdain with which we're giving uh, Jerome Garcia at the moment. Because There's definitely a hand underneath it. I don't. it. Like, it, it's definitely seemed to me. And also, when you go to a sideline camera of it, granted, Keane Healy's arms of it, the ball is like up here. It's like that ball isn't that big that it's actually up near your face and it's also touching the grass so anyway that's, that's a bit of a tangent but he just kind of reminded me of it when you, when you started talking about the, the front row there uh, like I, I think Ty Furlong as you say is undroppable of course he is Rory Best is obviously droppable at this point the question is is there a bit of a drop off between him and Sean Cronin when it comes to the set piece of course there is when it comes to anybody in the second row James Ryan still has the aura of undroppability at the moment uh, there's no question about that also helped hugely by the fact that we're, we've now got an injury crisis uh, in the second row the back row is probably up for grabs at the moment, but Peter O'Mahony is going to start. So there's no question about that. And I think there's Van der Fleer. Yeah, people asking questions about Peter O'Mahony, whether or not, um, like, if Toner's out, there's no way that O'Mahony is droppable. Because that's, that's what I mean. Yeah, OK. All right, let's move to, to the newspapers. Uh, off-colour Reds leave door open for City. Uh, Rice pulls the strings as hammers for straight leaders. Declan Rice pretty good football, isn't he? He's all right. He's handy enough, the kid. Uh, unacceptable park surface closed until further notice. All that money, and they couldn't get a decent surface at uh, Porky Cueve. That's a bit unfortunate, isn't it? Well, it's a, I would imagine a, a pitch is a drop in the ocean of 110 million quid. 110 million quid, and you can't even get a good pitch. Well, we, we don't know if it's 110 million quid. Worst case scenario, they'd be unlucky yeah. if it was 110 million quid. Yeah, so they're going to relay the pitch, apparently, later on in the summer. Uh, we can't feel sorry for ourselves after England hurt O'Mahony. Um, well, if you can't feel sorry for yourselves after England come and beat the shite out of you, when are you going to feel sorry for yourself? I mean, that's the one week you're like, you at least allowed 24 hours of going, feeling a bit sorry. Sorry, I need a bit of sympathy. No? No. No, I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think anybody's feeling sorry for themselves. I think they were all feeling angry and fed up. Fed up, maybe, is the, the wrong choice of word. But they're angry with themselves. They're, ang- they're angry with England as well. The underdogs coming over and ambushing us. Uh, Australia's champion trainer Weir faces four-year suspension. This is an amazing story coming from Australia. Um, so a jigger is the local name for an electronic device, usually used with a whip, and is designed to deliver an electronic shock to a horse in the bid to produce a better performance on the track. And you're like, okay, well, this is obviously, you know, somebody who's probably not that good uh, doing this stuff. But no, 
It's Australia's champion trainer, Darren Weir, who's facing a four-year suspension from the sport for possessing illegal electric devices known as jiggers after they were found on his property during a raid by stewards and police. A Melbourne Cup-winning trainer, 614 named horses in his care, has won multiple Group 1 prizes in a career spanning... Uh, sorry, sorry, he spent 11 hours in a preliminary hearing conducted by Racing Victoria Stewards yesterday. They raided his, uh, his property and found a bunch of stuff. I'm just going to read it here to make sure. So... Uh, an unregistered firearm and cocaine were also reportedly found at the properties. Which is mad when you think about it. It's like very, very high profile. Not, not some guy with uh, two horses. Uh, the, a little taser. I mean, I, I would run faster with a taser. Ow. You'd also run faster with a bit of cocaine. So that's like what the... Um, Is it cocaine for the horses? I agree, we can't... It's obviously alleged details of who's actually utilising uh, the cocaine, but there, were, there has been stories of greyhounds, of course, being uh, fed cocaine to run faster. So why wouldn't horses? Somebody said, uh, chilly up the hole of the greyhound is the thing. Is that what it is? That's crazy. Like, you shouldn't be laughing at stuff like that, Jer. Uh, no. Uh, bubble bursting, Liverpool feeling city heat after draw at West Ham. Uh, a bunch of my mates got a tip for a greyhound last night that won. I mean, oh, yeah? Yeah. Trap 5. Why don't you pass the, on that tip to me? Trap 5. I'll, uh, it's like, hmm, that's interesting. How do you know, how do you know a greyhound's going to win a race? I mean, that's mad. Well, is it more mad than knowing a horse is going to win a race? Like, I suppose you've got a jockey, there's some sort of human control over it. But. Mike Quirk, already there's a championship case for the Sinbin and the Mark. Uh, look in the mirror, Manny warns Ireland there can be no moping. So, um, the, are you in favour of having been to, you went to the game this weekend as well? Yeah. Yeah. Are you in favour of the... The offensive Mark? And the Sinbin? Yes, definitely. Both? Yeah, uh, without question. I think they're both great additions. Mike Quirk is asking the question, he actually makes comparison with the NHL and the power plays that come there that it just completely transforms the dynamic of the game for a very short amount of time. There's just... Simbin. Yeah. Uh, although uh, on Sunday it kind of changed in a weird way where Tom Sullivan got black carded for Kerry and Kerry ended up having a purple patch as a result of that. Scored four points. Yeah. Uh, which, which Tom country? Sullivan holding them back? Absolutely not. But the lead weight around their, their arse, is that what it was? Potentially, that, but uh, it's, it, it was, it's kind of strange given he's been one of their best players. But um, the idea then that this is in now but not in the summer is just, it's still kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Which? The idea that they, this can't be in this summer. At least give Congress a vote in February to introduce the Simbin and the, and the offensive mark have a special for Congress. this summer. I don't want to have a special Congress in May, no? After the league, so April. So wait until the league is over, get the body of evidence, have the special conference, yeah. go, oh, we've changed our minds, we're coming in. No? Well, they, they could do that. It, like, maybe conference rooms are hard to get at this late notice, but it's certainly a good idea. They own a stadium, too. That was a very good point. <laughs> O'Mahony, a bit of hurt to be there this week. That's uh, Peter O'Mahony about to steal a line-out, I think. Or maybe that's one of the ones that um, England managed to win. Uh, injuries leave Schmidt with selection puzzles to solve, and there is um, Percy just under coming off looking like Cosimodo. Um, you do have to wonder why they left him on. Uh, Jerry Thorny, it should it should pay for Ireland to stick rather than twist. So um, uh, Thorny calling for uh, basically as, as similar a team selection as um, injuries will allow. Gambler Russell ready to roll the dice anywhere in the pitch. This is uh, Finn Russell being the opposite of uh, Johnny Sexton. Lack of lockstock leaves Ireland looking down the barrel. Hey, tab of the morning to you.
Um, so this is the fact that Ulton Delan might be in line for a start or potentially at least a place on the bench and the fact that um, perhaps Scotland won't present quite the same physical challenge that England. It'll be a different, more energetic physical challenge that Scotland um, pose and that game might be uh, well set for uh, Ulton Delan. I'm not in any way uh, worried about Ulton Delan coming into the Ireland team. I think it's a big opportunity for him to remind everybody that he was the hot new thing in the second row just two years ago. Uh, don't blame Schmidt for England loss. Armani says hurt players take responsibility. And uh, Michael Antonio and his balls are the back page picture of the Times Ireland edition. He's, um, is he doing a Michael Jackson impression? Mm, dodgy enough uh, at the moment. Cork's pitch is unacceptable. Uh, that's the story that Porky Cueve, uh isn't going to see any matches for a while. They've taken the Cork Clare Alliance Hurling League game to Porky Rin. And rugby is launching a new five-a-side game called Rugby X. They're not called it uh, Rugby V. They get Wouldn't the, that make more sense? They get their Roman numerals wrong? I think they mean X as in X games, you know? Ah, okay. The millennials don't really know about the... Um, did you see the Google search graph that everybody comes out with every year? It's like uh, uh, Super Bowl and Roman numerals explained search by search and you can chart the two searches against each other and it's tiny, tiny, tiny at the end of the year because nobody can tell you 53 from 54. Uh, back page of the Mirror this morning is Bubble Whammy. Clock rocked by a major wobble as Hammers Hurt Red's title charge. The back of the star then, meanwhile, is Hammer Blow, Liverpool's title charge stalling. The back page of the Irish Daily Mail then this morning is testing times. O'Brien's in mix for number eight spot as injuries mount, and you've also got that unacceptable Parky Cueve pitch story. The back page of the Herald this morning is Hammer's pop pool bubble. Klopp's men feel title pressure a city aim to take pole position. And then the back page of the Sun is giant blow. Mikhail Hammer's cop title dream. You've also got the story here that... £40 million, pounds, Emery facing a spending cap. So it seems that Unai Emery is only going to have £40 million quid to spend this summer on replacements uh, for his Arsenal squad. So not exactly an encouraging sign if they want to go after bigger things next season. And finally for me, the back page of the Guardian is uh, Mo Salah there, hammer blow. Liverpool's title bid takes another hit as leaders drop more points with West Ham draw. And then the other story here is safety factor at the festival. Cheltenham move fence to reduce risks. So course officials at Cheltenham are taking the highly unusual step of moving a fence to reduce risks for horse and jockeys. It's one of the trickiest steeplechase fences uh, at the home of jump racing, but only two fences that have been shifted in the last 20 years. Uh, so it's the second last fence, which comes almost immediately after the final bend in races run on Cheltenham's old course, uh, has one of the highest faller rates, and uh, they're going to change that. Um, a quick tweet from Isla Cody. Can we put Zebo on the plane to Japan? Also, not enough was factored into Henshaw being the size of a centre at fullback. CJ playing on a very worrying sign. If this is how they view blatant injuries, how do we trust them on unseen ones? Um, I, I thought uh, I tweeted about Zebo and uh, got a massive response to it. Just backing yourselves into a corner for the special uh, period that is the build-up to the World Cup doesn't seem that smart an idea for the next six months. Break the rules for the next six months. Just decide, oh yeah, quick amnesty after this everything comes back into play. I agree, I agree. And also as well, Joe Schmidt has got no legacy of his own sort of uh, authority after this either. He's gone after the World Cup. Yeah, so you would assume that it's New Sephora who would prevent anything like this happening because it's his job to look into the future. But you kind of go... I'm sure if Schmidt has a word with New Sephora, he'll get his way, no? Yeah, well, and then stick Tonica Ryan back in the team. No? 
Well, you take Dunnock Ryan this weekend, for sure. You take yeah. Dunnock Ryan in our current uh, second world crisis. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Daniel Harris is with us this morning to, uh, to gloat, no doubt, about the fact that he's been right about Liverpool all along, Daniel. Um, well, I'm not sure. We ha- it remains to be seen. But the thing is, is Liverpool had a phenomenal amount of points in the first half of the season. Not, not just for them, but for any team. And they just at no point struck me like a team that were that good, that was so good that they were going to win almost every game. And so it's funny because over the course of the last few seasons, teams have sort of been winning the league without actually having a bad patch. Manchester City pretty much did it. Chelsea didn't really start. There was a few points at the beginning and then barely not again until the league was secure. And Leicester never quite had a bad run either. But it does look like Liverpool are starting to hit that blip. They've got a few injuries, a few difficult games. And in the end, I think they're not that good. Yeah. Why not? What's the issue? So I think the issue yesterday and the issue um, also um, against Leicester in midweek was that if you stop that front three, there's not a lot else Um, because the midfield players are decent players. So at full strength, when they've got um, Henderson, Milner, Wijnaldum, they can run you off the pitch, but they're not going to play you off the pitch and they're not going to pass you off the pitch. Um, Yesterday, obviously, Henderson, Wijnaldum were injured um, and Milner played at fullback. So what they had was Fabinho, who is probably a better player than we've seen, and the same serve Cater, actually. But again, they're not players with... They're, they're players whose X-factor is not one that is going to move the ball quickly and dissect um, dissect a well-organised defence. I actually thought Cater played better than I've seen him in a lot of games yesterday. But if you look at the options that City have to move defences around and to create space for their front players, and if you just think about how many match winners City have, like, there's, there's no comparison, really. If you think about either or elite level players, who are Liverpool's elite level players? Virgil van Dijk and Mohamed Salah. And that's it. If you look at who City's elite players are, you're making a list, you're running out of fingers. And those are the kind of players that when things don't go according to plan, you can rely on either a style of play that gets you there in the end or an individual who gets you there in the end. And Liverpool don't really have enough of either of those two things, I don't think. Do you not think that for the role he... Uh, provides to the squad that Firmino is an elite level player and the same for Alisson and Sadio Mane even at least two out of those three are surely elite as well no? Um, Alisson I guess I I would have to see more of I'm not saying he's not an excellent goalkeeper but um, I haven't seen him have that many brilliant games for Liverpool make that many brilliant saves for Liverpool where I think most goalkeepers wouldn't have stopped that Um, when you think about who the best goalkeepers are in the world so far um, I don't see that Alisson is that close to David De Gea. He might be. And maybe David De Gea just has more to do. But I haven't seen it yet from Alisson. But perhaps he is. And as for Firmino and Mane, I think they're, they're good players in this formation. They work. But if you're asking me, do I think that... if, if you're, I'm saying Sergio Aguero is an elite level player. I don't think Roberto Firmino is in the same fortnight as Sergio Aguero. Um, and Sadio Mane, again, is a good player. But he's not in the league of even Mohamed Salah never mind some of the players that other teams have. So I'm not, I'm not saying that these players aren't excellent players. They're not high-level players. But when you're thinking about players who are going to regularly make the difference for you when you're chasing a title, um, it remains to be seen at the very best whether those guys are good enough. I, I do wonder as well, like if we take that point uh, and move it on a little bit further, if the idea of the chaos that surrounds Liverpool sometimes is 
really the best way to approach things because I guess if you have a, a squad full of elite players, if you have a, a squad where 1-11 to 11 is a, a top-class, world-class talent, then you can get away with a bit of chaos. You can get away with things being off the cuff a little bit more. I do wonder, does Jurgen Klopp need a little bit more control in terms of their attacking play? Well, I think he tried to sign Nabil Fekir in the summer and Fekir was an acknowledgement that the midfield is a bit prosaic. But had they signed Fekir... He would have, he's in his way more of the same. He would have given them that vision that they got Shakiri for instead. Um, and Shakiri has obviously helped. But what Fakir wouldn't give you, and what Fakir on his own wouldn't give you, is that method that you're talking about. That ability to keep passing the ball, because that requires more than one player. That requires at least two or maybe three midfield players that will keep the ball moving. And um, the way that Liverpool played this season has actually been quite a lot less chaotic than last season. We've seen them rely on the defence a lot more rather than them rather than them just run opponents off the field and uh, score a lot of goals and concede a lot of goals. So they have been a little bit different this season, but it's beginning to look like as things are getting a bit tense, they're going back to what they know. And um, that's a bit of what we saw yesterday where they're just trying to play, play the ball a bit quicker. They're rushing and um, that's not always going to work when you play teams that have decent players and West Ham have decent players. Leicester have decent players and they happen to bump into them on a day when their decent players played well and their plan worked. And that's those games when you're going for a title where you've got to find a way to win. And Liverpool don't have any form in doing that. And they don't quite have the quantity of individual talent that will find a way for you if the, if the method isn't there. We've been talking about this a while, um, particularly during January when the injuries were starting to stack up in their defence. The Joe Gomez injury we were told at the start of January would be over fairly soon. He's coming back imminently. Uh, they they don't really need to add anybody because that's not how they do their business. And um, you know they've sent out a right back. Sure, what's the big deal? He didn't really want to be there anyway. But in retrospect, and at the time, the case that we were making was break your rules. This is one of the few opportunities you're ever going to have to cement your position at the top of the table. Sign a right back, whoever that right back is. All they need to do is to be good enough to play the next five or six games to get you through this sticky period. And they didn't do that. And lo and behold, suddenly they don't have Milner in midfield because Milner's playing right back. And uh, they don't have that strength and depth. They're, they're left with Adam Lallana playing, who, whether or not that um, one bit of trickery justifies his existence for the entire 69 minutes that he played last night, I'm not sure. But break your rules if you have to to try and win a league. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely fair about the right back that it probably didn't make sense to let Klein go because obviously he wants to play and no one wants to keep an unhappy player. And we can debate whether there's a moral issue between uh, whether there's a moral issue of making someone work somewhere they don't want to, whatever job they do. Uh, I would suggest that. But they should probably have tried to keep Klein because he'd be playing right now. The centre-back thing is a bit more difficult because Gomez is injured and Lovren's injured at the same time. You should, you should probably expect that, that that's not going to be the case. It's probably fair to assume that that's not, not going to be the case. And that isn't why they didn't win last night and it's not why they didn't win against Leicester. The problem, I think, last night and the problem against Leicester was, was the attacking, really. And again, they missed Trent Alexander-Arnold because, because they don't have that flair and that guile and that wit in midfield. They rely a lot on their fullbacks to give them some width which means that they've got overloads because their wide players then come inside Mane. Mane and Salah can sort of attack that space between fullbacks and centre-backs because someone else is supplying the width and someone else is putting the ball in the box. And they didn't really have that yesterday. And what I would say is you don't really want to be looking like this at the beginning of February. These are the kind of performances you might expect at the end of March, at the beginning of April. 
But to be performing like this at this point of the season is not really what you need because it shows that the nerves are going to get on top. And as it gets closer and closer, as we get closer and closer to the end of the season, the players might start to wonder whether they can actually rely on themselves to get the job done because they don't have that resource of having done it before, which Manchester City do. Most of those players, they all won the title last season. Quite a lot of them have won it at least once before. and Some of them have won it twice before. So they know that they can rely on themselves to find a way of getting the job done. And, and in the end, they're just better. And it is unusual for a team that doesn't have the best players and the best team to win the league. And that, as you mentioned, that's what I've been saying here all season. It just seems very hard for, for me to see a way that a team can take the title away from Manchester City because they have so many of the best players in the league and a, form, and a format that works. And if they can, if they can keep it sensible, then it's quite hard to see them not winning it from here. There is a factor as well, of course, with the last couple of games that set pieces have cost them points directly. And I mean, they probably should have conceded a second one from Declan Rice as well last night. It is a little bit odd that a team who have the two central cogs of their set piece defending, like I'm making an assumption here that the two central cogs are Alisson and Virgil van Dijk, that they've been a consistent part of that, that whoever is the other professional footballer who is in that setup should be fairly adequate at defending set pieces, but it seems that once the personnel drops out, their level at defending set pieces drops. Is that a fair comment? Um, I'm sure it's a fair comment for any team. If you don't have mm. your first choice back five, you're going to find it harder to defend all, all the way in, in any circumstance. But I think last night was a little bit different because the goal, for example, that didn't come from a ball in the box. So if you're yeah. used to defending the box in a particular way and the crosses come in, then people should know who's doing what. But what we saw yesterday was the value of practicing set pieces and we've seen that quite a bit <clears throat> we've seen that quite a bit this season actually where teams are being a little bit more creative with the way they're taking corners and free kicks and in the first half in particular every time West Ham got a free kick they looked like they planned what they were going to do for that instance and that immediately becomes harder to defend than a ball put into the box whether it's a good ball or not and so they're then going to be asked to defend a second ball not a first ball and you're not just going to be there to punch it clear or to head it clear. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it was it was on Virgil van Dijk and Alisson that, because the goal actually came because um, was it um, was it Naby Keita switched off, and that was just really good planning from West Ham. And when teams plan like that and they execute it properly, it's really really hard to defend. Yeah, it's a good finish as well. I want to play you this. It's Pat Nevin speaking on the show last night. Here he is talking about Chelsea suddenly being a difficult tie for City next weekend. Have a look. Do you feel it's fairly certain that City will win? Chelsea suit them nicely, do they? Um, I think they're a the dream team for uh, City to okay. play against right. Chelsea in many ways because you know you're going to play Manchester City at their own game. Man City are better at it, mm. so you know it's, it's not absolutely beyond the bounds of sure. possibility. Um, but I mean, I, I would be surprised. What I might, I would almost suspect, is a high-scoring game. We're probably both sides scoring because mm. um, that's just the way Sarri is. He will open it out against Manchester City. And, you know, it will be an interesting game that, that way, but it will be mayhem. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm sort of open enough to enjoy the skills of any player that's out there. And there should be a lot of good players playing out there as well who will be given a bit of space because it'll be quite an open game. So, no, I mean, but having said that, Mark Lawrence, and I think the call City won't get beat till now in the end of the season. I don't know how big a call that is. A bigger call would be the win every game between now and the end of the season. Yeah, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but I will not be even slightly surprised if that does happen. 
Yeah, I, I should obviously have said that um, it won't be a difficult tie for uh, for City. Um, I, I can kind of see a lot of people ready to make the call that City have recovered from their blip and that pending some disaster in the Champions League, that it's not that difficult to see them winning every game from this point forward. Um, I think it's quite difficult to see that because it just doesn't really happen very often. I think the longest winning run at the end of the season is when Arsenal won 13 straight at the end of 0-1-0-2. And that is unusual. Teams don't usually do that. Um, City might might be able to do that, but they're still in the League Cup. They're still in the FA Cup. And actually, they're really only one, probably one difficult game away from winning the FA Cup. They're still in Europe. So something will probably slip somewhere, but um, it may not be in the league. So I, yeah, it's possible that they win every game, but... I'd be fairly surprised if that happened because that kind of thing doesn't happen very often. But I would expect them to take care of Chelsea. Um, I'm not sure that Chelsea will play a particular, necessarily play an open game against them. I think what they'll try and do is they'll try and keep the ball as much as they can when they have it, look to draw City in and then try and break in numbers because that's they've got to score a goal. And they'll then try and get Hazard and Higuain into the game. But I definitely wouldn't expect them to engage City in an open game because they'll get whacked if they do. What did they do when they beat them the month before last? It, it felt fairly open, like the details are kind of a bit sketchy at the moment. There was like a lot of uh, crossfield passing. Like David Luiz was obviously unbelievable that day uh, against Manchester City, but it did seem it, w- it was fairly open. Um, no, I think Chelsea defended quite deep in numbers and waited for the opportunity. I think they got a bit lucky that day. If I remember correctly, um, Aguero was injured and Guardiola didn't pick Jesus, just left him on the bench and City played without a centre-forward. And they played in such a way, it reminded me of an Alex Ferguson line after United had been beaten by Celtic. And he said something along the lines of, they were enjoying playing so much that they forgot they were in a match. And that was basically how City played. They played like they assumed a goal would be along eventually. They didn't actually make a lot of chances. Sterling missed a good one. But then other than that, they passed the ball very nicely. They didn't create a lot. And then, and then, Chelsea, and then Chelsea did them on the break just before half time. And then they did them on the break again a bit later on. So, so no, I don't really think that was a particularly open game. I think it looked open when City were attacking because they played pretty well, but they just forgot that edge that you need to win to often to win games against decent teams. And I would imagine that Chelsea have beaten City playing one way this season. I don't think they're going to try and alter that too substantially because they don't really have the players to. They're not going to outplay them in midfield. And if you're not going to outplay a team in midfield, then you're pretty much left soaking up the pressure and looking to counter quickly. And that's pretty much Chelsea's only route to beat City. But like we can look at what's happened over the last couple of weeks as a little bit of self-inflicted wounds from a Liverpool perspective. But ultimately, have Manchester City started this themselves in terms of beating Liverpool? Was this actually the seed of doubt that was sown from their exact title challenges? Uh, Liverpool played pretty, pretty well that day. Um, and actually, they probably consider themselves unfortunate to have got to have got beaten. Um, on another day, they could have taken the lead in that game. So Liverpool, actually, they, I would say they rose to that game. And that was a really good sign, the way that Liverpool played in that match. It's actually just the last last few games where they've been showing a bit of tension, not against games like City, where you, I guess the players probably feel that in the head-to-heads, they quite fancy themselves against City. It's, there, it's when things don't go well from the beginning of the game and the players start to get nervous and the crowd starts to get nervous. So even the Palace game, they did brilliantly to find the way to win that, but you won't be able to find the way to win every game where you concede three times at home. And um, similarly against Leicester, they got the early goal, 
But then Leicester started to come into the game and Liverpool started to get nervous. And of course, it's completely understandable. Why wouldn't they get nervous? They've not won the league for 29 years. They're looking to find a way to win the league. That is nerve-wracking for the players. There's a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. They know how important it is to the supporters. And more than that, they know how important it is to their own careers. They want to win the league. And it's, it's difficult to win the league. And so it's possible that this is just a run of bad form that's coincided with a run of injuries, which is what happened to City when they lost those three games around Christmas. But with Liverpool, because they don't have the track record of having done it, because they don't have as many options and as many, as many excellent players, you start to wonder if it's in fact something else. And um, we'll start to find out over the next few weeks. But they need to find a solution really quickly, because if not, City will be out of sight. Yeah, OK. One last um, question for you about uh, the ongoing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer situation. As time keeps going, as the results keep being as good as they are, as so many players keep talking about the change in atmosphere, environment and their happiness, as contracts begin to get signed, it's starting to look not quite inevitable that he's getting the job, but like far more likely than not that he will be the manager next season. I think what happens in the next month or so will probably tell us. If... If United get beat by Paris Saint-Germain and start to lose ground in the league with some difficult games, then obviously it's less likely that he might get the job. But if they start, if they carry on playing as they're playing, then they've got a much better chance. I suppose what we've seen in the last few weeks, obviously he's still getting points, but you could start asking some questions. Why wasn't he able to affect the flow of the game against Leicester? Would be one question you might ask. And you might look at it the other way and say, well, you've watched loads of those games under Alex Ferguson, where United looked to not play all that well and still produce the one moment of definitive quality in the game and come away with the win. So you could look at it that way, or you could say he ought really to have found a way of altering the flow. Or I guess you could look at it a third way and say, well, actually, United just don't have the players to dominate a decent team in midfield. So whoever the manager is will need to buy one, maybe two players to put them in a position where they're able to do that. But I agree, it is, it is looking like he might get the job. And um, the way that it's working out at Paris Saint-Germain also seems to be playing into his hands where they won't have Neymar. Looks like they're not going to have Verratti either. And then they all of a sudden become quite a beatable team. And the home leg first also probably works for Solskjaer where United have an opportunity to establish themselves in the tie rather than play at home and they're already, say, 2-0 down or 3-1 down, which they could be. But... They've got to find a way. They've got to try and find a way to beat Chelsea in the Cup. They've got to try and beat Liverpool at home. And it seems unlikely that they're going to construct a winning run that encompasses all of those games. But if they come out of February and they're still in Europe and still in with a run of the top four, then, yeah, it will be very difficult to see anyone else getting the job. Daniel, great stuff this morning. Thanks a million. Cheers. I'll see you again. Daniel Harris giving us some thoughts there on the Liverpool situation, the uh, Chelsea-Man City game, and, of course, the uh, more likely than not now situation at United hmm. do you think it's going to go to the final day there's three points between them and they both have to play Spurs Chelsea Manchester United it's odd that they both have to play the exact same top six teams in the run-in it's probably is it also too soon to be calling it a run-in I know it's running it's now like, is it running from the start of March start yeah. of April are Spurs out of it no of course not uh, they're no, five, five points behind Liverpool at the moment they do have to play both those teams. Uh, they've got to play Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool, Manchester City. So they've got uh, four big hitters, whereas the other two only have three. They've also got the Champions League to contend with, as the other two do. So it's not exactly that they have too many more advantages. And just, also, they're Tottenham. Did you just call Arsenal a big hitter there? Did you? Did you just sneak Arsenal in as a big hitter? 
Yes, it is. As an Arsenal fan, just, oh yeah, there's these big games with Arsenal coming up. Well, do you want to remind me of the first no. North London derby result of the season? No, I don't want to remind you of that. So that's the next fixtures there on the right hand side. There also, it seems also that the um, the stadium, the move is going to be delayed further from a Tottenham perspective. Good. So uh, Neil Warnock is getting, getting his way once again. All right. Okay. Um, there was one other thing we wanted to bring you. Declan Rice being raved about by. I mean, do we want to bring this? Is this not, not just a bit masochistic on our part? Uh, here is Pat Nevin talking about how amazing Declan Rice was last night. Declan Rice, we were talk- mentioning there. I mean, really? Is he only 20? I, I mean, he's going to be spectacular, isn't he? Is he? Spectacular. Uh, I, well, <laughs> I think he's going to be a phenomenal player. Really? A really phenomenal A phenomenal player. midfielder or defender or maybe a bit of whatever he fancies on the day? Whatever you want. I mean... Right. Do you think he'll be playing for West Ham United in two years? Do you think he'll be playing for Ireland in two years, Pat? That's, that's what we want to know, actually. <laughs> See, stop being, you just have to look at it and be honest about it. The guy can play. Uh, yeah, um, no, do you know what, Pat, as well? I think I've seen, I, we've all seen enough of him now, I suppose, as well. But the, the, the most noticeable thing about his game is his coolness under pressure. Yeah. I don't think he's got a massively huge uh, or great passing range. I don't think he's the sort of player that's going to be hitting 60, 70-yard passes. But his ability to take the ball under pressure is unbelievable. So that, that's not a 20-year-old boy that does that. No way. It's incredible. Yeah. So um, well, the, the, other, the other thing yeah. is the maturity of reading the play. Um, right. And he's been doing it a lot tonight. And it's, he, he kind of just turns up in the right places. And any time a full-back disappears out, uh, and they, not the wrong area, but goes attacking forward, and the full-back doesn't get back, it's him. He's there mm. every single time. He's, he understands where danger is. He sniffs it. Um, and it's just watching him very rarely caught out of position in those sort of situations. Um, I'm not really impressed, but generally more and more impressed as it's going on, but um, as his career's gone on. But at the moment, you're looking at that player and think, you know, you've watched so many players at the top clubs being like that, you know, but getting there when they're 25, 26, and he's there now. Yeah. That's going to make it all the worse when he says, look, I mean, I'm going to win a World Cup with England here. I'm sorry about that. That's why, that's why it's going to be worse, because he's got so good since we failed to cap him that one time and we could have capped him and stopped mm. this. Right, so uh, we're, I'm kind of sick of you know, us talking about Declan Rice being good at football. We've also got to the point of being sick of UK pundits talking about so how great Declan Rice is at football. What we need is to move it on to the next level, which is like World you know, Thierry Henry or Jose Mourinho on Russia Today talking about how great Declan Rice is at football. And that'll be a, a, a fresh, fresh angle. I'm, just, I'm sick of Declan Rice right now. Yeah, all right. There he is. Um, that's unfortunate, really. Stupid talent at Declan Rice. <laughs> it, it is a little bit weird that one of the big teams didn't make the move now in this transfer window to get him. You'll pay an extra £40 million in the summer, won't you? Yeah, but you have a bit more time in the summer to actually... Decide whether or not he's any good? The evidence is pretty convincing. It's like 18 months of hype, multi-positions, can play anywhere. Seems that January you have to be extremely sure, like... Liverpool would have been sure that they needed to cover in defence and even they didn't go into the transfer market to, to sign some cover. Well, so well, the extra £40 million is, isn't even from him being a good player and playing well, it's from the fact he's going to be an English international. Well, that's true, yeah. There's another reason. It's like, while this is ongoing, nip in and get him at the Irish price instead of having to pay the English price. Mm. It's, uh, <laughs> the perils of Brexit. Yeah, that, it, it definitely seems that way. Like... Uh, who actually realistically would have come in? Like when you talk about the clubs that are linked with them, Manchester City have obviously been, been spoken about. Manchester United. Liverpool. 
Arsenal. Liverpool and Arsenal have been spoken Spurs. about. Spurs and Spurs have been spoken about. But that doesn't mean they can't. That like I know it doesn't mean they can't. But there is no smoke without fire. He would have been a perfect signing for all of those teams. He literally would improve every single one of those teams. He would improve Manchester City. Well, Fernandinho's going to finish at some point, right? And he's 33. So he wouldn't improve them right now. He wouldn't start for Manchester City. He wouldn't get a game. He would get a game. He, he could get a game centre-back. He could get a game... Like, oh, he'd always look ropey at centre-back, though. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't, think Rice, I don't think Declan Rice would even get into the... There's a chance Declan Rice would get into the match-day squad for Manchester City. Like, it is an unbelievable squad. Like, does he get in ahead of Ilkay Gundogan? into the Manchester City squad I don't know but anyway every, all of the other teams Arsenal will be better yeah, Spurs no will be better Liverpool will be better uh, Man United would definitely be better Arsenal and Spurs definitely would they're all underperforming teams like Manchester United are obviously playing Pereira instead of Liverpool have like their record points total at this stage of the season not yeah, quite underperforming went from a 9 point lead to might actually be second in the table come tomorrow like, I do wonder if Liverpool fans were looking at that last night saying, oh, we, we wish you had you instead of um, Naby Keita or instead of Adam Lallana. Maybe, maybe there's an argument there. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But. My point is that it would have been good business for anybody to get him now as opposed to waiting until the summer when you're going to have to pay the inflated summer price. Yeah. And, and the next three months of hype that just add fuel to the fire. Yeah, it just seems to be a bit of a taboo about January at the moment in terms of actually going out and making big signings. We're not living in 2011 anymore. No. All for those heady days. How are you? I'm very well this morning, Jared. The Liverpool fan in your life, though, is not feeling too great, feeling a bit nervous. The Premier League leaders held to a frustrating 1-1 draw with West Ham at the London Stadium. The table toppers lost even more momentum. Their advantage chopped down to just three points. They were nine clear on December 29th. And at the time, no team has ever failed to win the English top flight with such a lead at that point of the season. Manager Jurgen Klopp is not panicking just yet. I can imagine when the ref knew in half time that it was a, a, obviously a big offside, then he wanted to level it a little bit, and that's how it looked. Are your team showing a, a few signs of nerves about being in front? You've oh, been in front not, a you can say about that what mm. you want. So we, we know what we do. I see the training week. We have to, if you want to be top of the table at the end of the season, you have to deal with these situations, and, and you have to learn to deal with it. It's not that you that it's the, like given with your mother milk or whatever um, that's, uh, you have to learn it and you have to get used to it that's completely normal so you're enjoying it what the kind with the mother milk or the game no the, 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 uh, the pressure yeah <laughs> so um, oh, no enjoying the, the if you enjoy the pressure yeah, enjoy the pressure of being out in front. Oh, no, it's, it's all good. It's, it's all positive. We have 62 points. It's absolutely positive. But, of course, we have to prove it in, in the next games. And there will be tighter situations. And there will be tougher things. And maybe at one point, and not only Wednesday, um, um, City is ahead and Tottenham is coming closer and going ahead. But the, the, the season is finished at the last day. Like, imagine if Tottenham won the Premier League this season. The world, the world would probably end. From Wembley. From Wembley. <laughs> Or like actually just uh, win their last game of the season. Like I wonder if they, uh, did they have open to it for the last game. Imagine if they open it and lose in the last day, and it's like oh yeah, they're home to Everton on the last day of the season. <laughs> that would be perfect. They've got the Porky Creeve uh, pitch or something, <laughs> uh, and they'll have to ha- have a good long hard look at themselves moving back to Wembley for whatever it is pre-season next year. It, it would like I'm pretty convinced that the world would stop spinning if Tottenham won the Premier League this year. It, it would just be hilarious. And bizarre in equal measure. So, are you calling Liverpool's bottle? Are you saying it's over? They've done it. They've choked. No, not at all. I'm saying that. Yeah, you were. You pretty much were. I, I, I highly suspect Manchester City are going to win the, the Premier League. But if if Tottenham win uh, the league, it, it just would be hilarious, given how 
the numerically the, it makes so much sense for them to be in a title race and even if like newspapers here are actually saying it's a three-way race and all that you can even sense by the tone nobody actually really believes it Man City are favourites now I didn't realise that yeah I, I would slightly favour them as well now like he, I, I think going into the back end of 2018 there was a sense that this Manchester City team were not only going to win the Premier League but there was a chance they might actually run away from it because I don't know why we even came up with this idea and then over Christmas things went crazy and it was like there's no way Liverpool can let this slip uh, and now we're back to a sense of parity as well, which I think we're really, I think we're talking, in, we're going to the last three games, at the very least. We're talking last two games potentially here. So like Liverpool's last three games are Huddersfield at home, Newcastle away, Wolves at home, Manchester City's last three games are Burnley away, Leicester at home, and Brighton away. So they're three... Nine, nine points from both of those, for both of them. But that, that's what you say. Yeah. Oh, the but, Liverpool one looks a bit rough. But that's, that's just what I say. Like, you, you look at the last... Liverpool have the worst run in. Who have they got? Well, Huddersfield, Newcastle, Wolves compared to Burnley, Leicester, Brighton. Well, I, I, I don't think Wolves, banana skin, and Newcastle just not good. Wolves will be on holidays. It's the last day. They have nothing to play for. Newcastle at that stage will be safe. And Huddersfield will be gone. So, And also, that'll be like the end of Rafa. Rafa will be picking the, the, like, the kids' team just to make sure that his reputation on, and, around Liverpool is cemented forever. Yeah, like... We all lost one of ourselves like, after... What day was it they beat Arsenal? They whacked Arsenal? 28. 28th. They were nine points clear. They were coasting to the Premier League title. People forget the absolute ridiculous results that can happen over Christmas and the fact that City probably were going to steady with the depth in their squad while the Liverpool squad would need an awful lot of luck with injuries and keeping people fit. And that's what we're seeing. That was Klopp's main complaint. He's struggling with injuries. He's had to change things late on and it's really put a stretch and strain on them. I'd like to see in their scouting room the list of names that are up on the board for right backs and how unachievable or unattainable they are and how much money it would have cost could they not have rented somebody basically bought them and then sold them in the summer no not not actually loaned it but bought somebody and then sold them again in the summer if money was going to be an issue like if you were to sign and I'm only using Matt Hardy because it's a really easy example that everybody understands if you sign him for 20 million quid you're getting your 20 million quid or 15 or 18 or 22 million back in the summer what's the big deal what's the big deal sign him Somehow, him or somebody else is going to derail this character, the the dressing room hierarchy so much. The character is so weak they can't have one player come in. Is that what's happening? No, it's a seller. To help them try and win a league. There's no value. Like it's a seller's market, and people know that Team A are desperate. They're going to whack up the price. Matt Darty is not a twenty million player, and he'll probably be a forty million player if they wanted to get him. But you'll in get, January. you'll get way, you'll get that money back if you have to sell him in the summertime. If your if your finances are so paper thin. If the margin is so close that you you know you're going to rise or fall on the basis of one stage payment to uh, for whatever like that would actually only be five million right? Uh, I don't know. You must be able to somehow find some way to just get a bit of depth in, get somebody new in, so that you do have Milner in midfield if you need him last night. And they did need him in midfield last night. To be honest with you, well, exactly. James Milner himself. If you asked him, would you rather play right back or would you rather be play every second game in midfield? Uh, if we sign a proper right back, he would obviously say I'd rather play every second game in midfield. So I, I, I admit that maybe my talents aren't best utilised at right back. That I've done a, quite a quite a good job for Liverpool in midfield so, of late. So I think the disruption of uh, dressing room harmony is an, a complete nonsense argument. But we don't even know if that's the truth. Maybe Liverpool, like I'm sure somebody has to be looking after this as a constant part of the role in terms of looking after recruitment uh, in season and looking at the January transfer window as a potential target. So it just seems beyond belief that they didn't do it, but maybe maybe from a, an actual first team squad perspective, Jurgen Klopp just kind of forgot about January. It's a fairly it's a fairly busy time. People are just so sceptical of doing any business in January. 
but after Liverpool's slip-up, Man City can return to the summit if they beat Everton tomorrow. Speaking of slip-ups, Jose Mourinho about to drop the puck in. He's in Russia on a little bit of a holiday. There we go. Puck's in. Oh! Ah. <laughs> it's the bit where it's like, your man's got to shake his hand. Oh, yeah, I will shake her. Oh, balls. Can we see it one more time? Yeah. It looks, it's the most beautiful thing of all time, isn't it? <laughs> It is, uh, it is very Stevie G in Siberia. Like, he's really warming up to the idea of Russia, isn't he, Jose Mourinho? Yeah. A bit of a, bit of a I wonder how that game actually transpired in the end, the old uh, Russian Hockey League. Uh, so, Jose, is that, like, where he's based at the moment now? Is it just sort of keeping, keeping tabs on what's going on in the country? He's going around trying to sell himself to whatever broadcaster will have him. Russia Today, be in sports. I'll come in, I'll sit on your couch, I'll tell my funny stories. Hopefully you won't ask me about my failures and... Um, Pay me outrageous amounts of money to do it. It would be class if some way there was like some route back for Jose Mourinho at Chelsea this season. Was it you that was calling Fletcher? Jose to go back to Chelsea? Fletcher wanted Conte back, did he? Oh, well, I'm saying you're already paying him. You might as well get some value for your money. <laughs> yeah, well, true. Like if they you were got, saying Mourinho back to... Somebody was saying it, but it wasn't Tommy me. Tommy said it in the office and then you went, yeah, that would be a great idea. Well, the thing is, Liverpool do play uh, Chelsea on the 13th of April. How funny would it be if Jose Mourinho came back with Chelsea and then just Liverpool's title challenge again? I am not your clown. They thought I would be the clown. Who's the clown now? <laughs> that was the greatest Jose rant of all time. The West Ham boss, Manuel Pellegrini, clashed with Jurgen Klopp after the game. The Hammers boss unhappy as James Milner was very clearly offside before setting up Sadio Mane's goal. Divock Origi should have also been flagged, but he wasn't. He missed the chance anyway, so it's inconsequential in the end. But Pellegrini uh, threw some not-so-subtle shade at Klopp after the game, saying, the German is used to winning with offside goals. Pellegrini cited a Champions League quarterfinal in 2013 where his Malaga side were controversially knocked out by Klopp's Borussia Dortmund. Klopp is used to win with goal offside. He beat me against Malaga with Borussia Dortmund with a goal seven meters in offside. So he cannot complain about nothing. They have two clear options. One that they score a goal in one meter half in offside and the other in the last minute again one meter in offside. Now, Newport County have the chance to set up a dream FA Cup fifth-round tie with Man City tonight. The League Two side welcome Middlesbrough to Rodney Parade for their fourth-round replay with a home tie at City awaiting the winner. Barnet, the lowest-ranked team left in the competition, go to Brentford. The winner travelled to Swansea. Watford away to the winners of tonight's meeting of QPR and Portsmouth. Wolves face a potentially tricky tie to League One side Shrewsbury at Molyneux with the winners taking on Bristol City. Meanwhile, Bowes have confirmed they've pulled out of the Iron Brew Cup. The club say the club say they cannot deal with the logistical nightmare caused by the late postponement of their quarter-final tie against East Fife. Officials did not allow last Saturday's game to go ahead due to a frozen pitch. Peter O'Mahony has rejected suggestions Ireland lacked motivation against England in their Six Nations opener. Ireland were dominated by Eddie Jones's charges. They suffered their first defeat in Dublin at the hands of the English since 2013. Conor Murray told off the ball after the game that England were just more pumped for the match. The Munster man insisted, though, Ireland will target an immediate response when they face Scotland at Murrayfield on Saturday. And O'Mahony took exception to the claim that Ireland lacked motivation. No, I don't think so. I think for me... You know, England at home is, is, you know, it says enough in itself. Um, so I don't think, I don't think we weren't motivated to go and win at home. Now that doesn't sit well with me. So um, I think, I think rugby-wise, we, we were beaten. You know what I mean? We, we got beaten by a better rugby team in the weekend. We go and put that right now by by training well this week. That's our focus: is getting back out there. This evening, uh, tomorrow, uh, and, and having some excellent training sessions to give ourselves the opportunity to play well at the weekend. 
Now, Peter Manny's full remarks are on our YouTube channel, YouTube Off The Ball. The GA have admitted that the playing surface at Porky Cueve is unacceptable at the moment. The pitch drew criticism from all sides. It cut up really badly during the Allianz League doubleheader over the weekend. So Saturday week's Division 1A meeting of Cork and Clare in the Hurling League has been moved to Porky Rin. The pitch will be assessed weekly, but the county board concede it will need to be relayed later this year. The GAA said, Our primary concern is player safety, and if an acceptable standard cannot be achieved, we will not risk player injury by fixing games in the stadium. Now, authorities searching for Cardiff City footballer Emiliano Sala have found a body in the wreckage of his missing plane. Air accident investigators confirmed on Monday that remains were visible in footage captured at the crash site. It is not clear at this stage whether the body discovered is that of Sala or his pilot David Botson. The Cardiff City footballer has been missing since the 21st of January. His plane disappeared from radar near the Channel Islands. Pretty grim. Um, just to go back to the uh, O'Mahony stuff, like the the nature of the defeat was so comprehensive and shocking. That's the bit, right? It's not that it's not that we lost a close game where somebody throws an intercept, or it's from the kickoff they kill us, and we get back to three points like by absolute sheer force of personality from the best team in the world last year putting everything they possibly can can just about get back into the game and then they get killed again because of the effort that it took to get back into the game so like he was upset at the inference that England just wanted it more that seemed to to really be one of his gripes but Murray actually said in the interview with Willow Callan after the game they were more pumped they were the words he used he said that they they came here they knew they were going to win and we just couldn't compete with them on that level that seemed to upset, annoy, frustrate O'Mahony. But it seemed like that complacency was relatively widespread. It certainly was in the media and it might have seeped into oh. their unbreakable bubble out in Carton House. Because Rog said yesterday on Monday Night Rugby that um, England just got sick of being told Ireland are the greatest team in the Northern Hemisphere. It was Owen Sheehan's fault. Cup. It was Owen Sheehan's fault. What? You po- correctly pointing out that we're a superior rugby nation to England? Nothing, it, it is uh, totally your fault. Get I used to what? being superior, I think, was the T-shirt they printed up. Oh, already used to, used to being superior. You know? I hope you feel um, proud of your achievements this week, Owen. Well, I guess you know sometimes the best team in the continent can get beaten. Yes, they, they go up against a plucky underdog who come over here and they play above themselves and we kind of play below ourselves one week. That, could, that, that kind of stuff can kind of tend to happen, you know? Yeah, I'm just, I would be concerned about the fact that like, there's a very clear template for the rest of the world to beat Ireland, particularly teams with big lads like South Africa. And there's a, I don't know, you just, you just hope that the cycle of peak and trough that we seem to be perfectly locked into the year before our World Cup, peak, trough, World Cup year, slowly crescendo to peak year before World Cup. It's just a bang of deja vu off this. Yeah, has it happened this year, or this early in a World Cup year though? We usually wait for you know, the World Cup itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's exactly what Joe Schmidt's doing, it's the old rub-a-dope. Uh, I think so Schmidt knew exactly what was coming yeah the lads played the montage at the start of Monday Night Rugby last night with the clips about him a few grenades it won't be just grenades it's going to be tanks on the lawn and it's like that was tanks on the lawn that's what it looks like Manitou Laggy is the tank on the lawn Courtney Laws off the bench is a tank on the lawn Toje is a tank on the lawn Vinapola and Vinapola are panzers or whatever type of tanks that the Brits use that's that's serious straws to suggest that that Schmidt had some kind of self-destruction just to lure no, the world no, into no, a no, no, no. false but, sense But they of knew it was coming and they couldn't fix it, is the point I'm and making. Do you know what you do if you're, if you're faced well, with... Why would that, that's not, not a good thing, though. No, not, I don't think it's a good thing. 
if you're faced with a panzer tank, you don't run into the panzer tank. You throw the grenade over the tank. Darren has to go. So uh, here's O'Gara last night on England being sick of hearing about how good this Ireland side are himself. And Alan Quinlan joined Joe out in Vodafone HQ. Have a look. You're right. I think um, we're all experts after the event. But that is exactly what happened. But if you look at it, I suppose you ask why. And... I think the Irish psyche is really suited to having that fear factor, but with the 2018, it's very hard to create that when you're kind of a steamroll and you're uh, bashing everyone out of your way that's mm. been presented over that year. So, you know, I mean, the, we, we know James Ryan's CV as a professional rugby player. He doesn't know what losing looks like. But he got a big belt on Saturday. Uh, but before that, it was kind of... He's going to prepare, do what he does every week, and we get a performance and a result. But I think you've got to um, put yourself in the shoes of the English players. So there comes a point in time when you say, I've had enough. Mm. And I kind of, that was for us in, in Munster, was probably 2009 from Leinster just had enough. And that was kind of what, what seemed to me in Saturday. England had enough of hearing how great Ireland are. Ireland are going to win the World Cup. Mm. And these guys are serious players. Yeah, they are. They are serious players. And that's the, um, that's the bit, I think, that you know, got lost in translation. Um, I, we were watching the warm-ups pre-game. Schmidt t- took it an active part. It was like the winger. kind of. He was outside um, Henshaw for the whole time, kind of talking to him about stuff. Um, and Ireland kept dropping balls, kept throwing it behind people, kept knocking on. Just and then we looked down at England. It was like, hmm, they're like very fast and very strong, and the ball has that ball hasn't touched the deck at all. <laughs> Our ball was kind of smudged in green. It's like, oh, what's going on here? This doesn't look good. You should have tweeted that beforehand. I should have, yeah, but um, you know, I, reverse I, jinx it. I was, yeah, I should have. Yeah. So it's your fault. Well, I think Owen, I think um, you can't dig yourself out of this hole just yet. Have, you've become a meme on the internet, have you? Is this the first time you've become a meme? No, obviously not. Uh, I haven't become a meme. I, everything I said was... Uh, FIFA was the first meme, was it? Is it FIFA? Did we throw it out? We did throw it out. I'm, not sure, no? I'm not sure which is more annoying, stupid little messy kids or stupid little English rugby fans. <laughs> Both annoying in equal measure, to be quite honest with you. Meme number three. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair... To be fair, it's it's all fair game. It's it's all fair game. I, I deserve I deserve what I'm getting. I deserve. I, I I've tried not to to look into uh, certain Reddit threads. And Are you not enjoying them? Certain no. Remix videos and things. There's like that. There's lots of remix videos. There's a lot of remix. Videos. There's a great video which um, was doing the rounds yesterday. Of uh, here's exactly what Owen Farrell said in the. In, so there's a huddle after the match, obviously, on the pitch. There was a huddle at half time. Yeah, they didn't yeah. go straight straight into England. Team, what was yeah. that about? Just clearly, it was Owen Farrell again leading the discussion and and saying to his team, "Whatever we don't we don't let this slip or whatever it may be." I, I did find it interesting. It's like, is that their motivational bit? And then Eddie Jones gives him direction. I don't know. I was kind of hoping, "Ooh, this is a good sign." They obviously hate the coaching staff so much; they don't want to hear them. That thought also crossed my mind at halftime. But uh, then afterwards, they came out afterwards with like, "Oh, this Mitchell guy is really good. He makes life very easy for us." Yeah, it's great having him around. Now they have just beaten Ireland, the best team in the world, the superior rugby forces. You would say. Like, has Eddie Jones just completely rope adopted us? Like, if we talk about that, in terms of the last couple of years, we talk about our obsession with the Rugby World Cup and how we desperately need to get past the quarterfinal and how everything else is irrelevant. We forget the idea that the 2015 World Cup 
was one of the most damaging things in recent memory for English rugby. On home soil, they tank out of the pool stages. They're, they've only got one. They've only got their sights set on one thing, and that is this year's World Cup as well. It is the year 2019. So yeah. maybe the last two years were all just a bit of a sideshow. Eddie Jones starts off with a slam. Let's the, the the next year slip it out a little bit and then has a disastrous 2018. I would have, um, you know, started 2018. I, I could have bought your conspiracy theory. I'm a big, um, I'm a big buyer of conspiracy theory generally. But uh, on slot today, just reading this earlier on, six months ago the England coaching unit was fractured. It had two big vacancies: no defence coach and no attack coach. Maybe it didn't help that Eddie Jones, the head coach, had earned a reputation as being particularly hard to work with. And then he ends up picking John Mitchell, and they're like, "This is never going to work." And then all of a sudden, one game in. Uh, well, so sorry, a brilliant November series. Mm, that's where, what I mean. Start of 2018 was bad, but just, like they had a very, very good November as well. So, like maybe they're just timing their run perfectly. Yeah. Farrell. Get get used to being superior. That's what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> get get used to I'll being superior. A- I've tried not to click on that. Somebody did send it to me on Twitter. Uh, you know, you kind of know when you're being trolled and you know what to not click on. Ah, you've got to click on the troll. Uh, and that, that was one of those things. So fair play to whoever did that. It must be said. But, you know, as, as we were saying earlier on, uh, like sometimes when an inferior nation comes to visit a superior nation, they just up their game a little bit. And yeah, that, that's, so exactly, that's, all, that's exactly what happened yeah. on Saturday. Like that, that used to be us. You know, the, the February air signifying that the plucky underdog could go and do something special. We used to be the plucky underdog. Uh, and now we are the superior big dog. We are the shark in the ocean. And little fishes like England come to try and play with us. And the, the cold February air is no longer the thing that interests us. It is the warm, muggy Japanese air in uh, November, which is what we are interested in. October, that, that's all we are interested in this year. Like, what happened at the weekend? It's like we've seen happen in sport many times. Like Leicester winning the Premier League, the, the miracle on ice, like the Jamaican bobsled team. Sometimes the underdog does go above and beyond what they're actually expected to do and come out on top. So, you know, inferiority sometimes trumps superiority, but we'll see where things lie in the long run. Uh, get, Alan, get used to being superior. <laughs> Alan Quinn was also at a Vodafone HQ yesterday for Monday Night Rugby. Uh, one thing's for sure, he is not happy, happy with Jerome Garcez. Have a look. This is the biggest moment in the game, I think. It's a complete, it's game over for Ireland, whatever chance we have. Robbie Henshaw runs up from the box kick for Murray. He taps it back infield. It hits Henry Slade's hand. It's a knock-on. Jerome Garces put out, puts out his right hand. Advantage Ireland. Rory Best tackle. Pass to James Ryan tackle. Pass to Gary Ringrose. Knock-on for the scrum. He never once said advantage over. Or if he did, his mic was out at that exact moment. There was moment. nothing wrong with his mic when yeah. CJ Stander was, about, was trying to pick the ball up from yeah. Ben Young. No, I didn't hear him say it either. No, he didn't say it. Yeah. And he didn't indicate it was over. So it should have been a scrum back to Ireland. Yeah, Did we still deserve to win the game? Now, I think the Macavunapolo one before half-time was potentially um, okay. But on balance, the try. referee's not the reason. No, Ireland not at all. But he was the worst referee possible for us in a dogfight because he doesn't handle you know, competitiveness and guys going in off their feet and a real aggressive approach. Um, you know, I thought you needed a stronger referee for he that. He lets too much go for you. Yeah, and he, he misses too much stuff for both that? sides. I thought Vunapola's try, Vunapola's try was a try in the first half for England, and I said it in commentary. If England lose this game, Eddie Jones is not going to be happy with that. In slow motion, it looks like a double movement. In yeah. real time, it's a try. Yeah. Um, it's definitely worth not losing sight of this kind of stuff because obviously there's the knee-jerk. England pummeled the crap out of us. Um and if a few bits of pieces happen in a game, 
rugby's weird in that you can be under the cosh, under the cosh, under the cosh, and if you don't get a penalty to relieve it, then it's a disaster. But if you do get a penalty, then suddenly they're thinking, oh, that's 10 minutes of our lives yeah. wasted. Um, but we didn't take advantage when they had a man in the bin. Could that have been a red card? We, could, could they have gone? Well, we, 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 did, we just kicked a touch when they had the man in the bin. So we had, we had used that extra man to gain that territory. So that was oh, the line-out yeah. that led to the try. They'd just, re- they'd just gone back to 15 when we'd taken the line-out. Like, okay, so we, we score off that line-out. Yeah, so I, I would say that we did u- utilise the extra man. And I, I actually think, like, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think Rory best chose to go for the corner because we had the extra man, not realising that there was only seconds left on the bin. Um, or maybe he, maybe he would have done it anyway. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I know, it, felt like they, it felt like they knew that England, England looked punch-drunk for about three or four phases of play. We just moved through them for the one and only time of the game, and we capitalised on that really well. So, like that's all the nous of the team's experience and the year of winning that they've had. That's that. Okay, actually, hang on a second. We can send a bit of blood here, and they go for it. And I thought that was like there was there were definitely parts that they're looking back in the video and that was a good decision. That was a good decision. That was a good decision. Here's the twelve bad decisions that you all make collectively. Um, Do you think Joe Schmidt knew we were going to be in a dogfight on Saturday? I think the point about the tanks is absolutely true. Exactly, exactly. Of course he knew. And Alan Quinlan said there, Jerome Gar says was the worst possible referee for Ireland in a dogfight. Now, do you think that Joe Schmidt, if Alan Quinlan knows that information, do you think Joe Schmidt knows that information? Of course he does. So do we have to take some sort of blame ourselves for not reacting to Jerome Gar says a style of refereeing ourselves? Yeah. We absolutely do. So I think it's a very one-dimensional view to just blame it on the referee and just stop the discussion there. If you can blame something on the referee and blame our attitude around the referee and how, he, how it's the worst possible thing for us in a dogfight, then we need to take a look at ourselves as well in terms of how we approach a Jerome Garcia's ref rugby match. Absolutely. I think, um, I think that's really the point that everybody needs to ask after this is how well prepared were the team to change their approach in the middle of what they're doing? Like... Um, plan A is not working in the middle of this phase of play. What is my plans B, C, D and E? And um, is our team selection correct to be able to change things up? When we get the injuries that we're going to get in a match, are we ready to do something different? And I, I didn't feel that way. It felt like this stuff... It, it felt like when Andy Dunn was talking in the build-up to this, he was talking about how Ireland's style of play is to um, have 100 more rooks than everybody else and to control games that way. And I think that the stats are still fairly similar Um Alan Quinlan brought them out last night. I think it was 160 to 80. Um, we lost one. They won all of theirs. And uh, if that is the style of play that everything is predicated upon and then it doesn't work, what do you do? Like, what is, what is, the, what is the answer? Where's our offloading game? Where's, where's our, okay, so going to the rook and it being slow, we're going to have 160 slow rooks. What do we do? Um, and I don't know what the answer is, but um, it didn't appear as if the players were going to something different. And maybe, maybe they shouldn't go to something different because they've just come off a year of success. And maybe this is the jolt that everybody has to stand back and go, OK, well, this is going to happen again to us. You can see other teams looking at that and going, OK, we're going to try the exact same thing. And you can see Scotland trying something completely different next weekend. And uh, I don't know. This is... This is a pretty interesting period for this team. Let's just say the, the level of trust in the process is going to be tested quite a bit, and I'm sure it was tested throughout the game. Like Just to kind of park the superiority stick for just a moment, if you had everybody available, 
on the England squad and everybody available on the Ireland squad. And there was a match between the two sides played in a neutral venue and they both played to the best of their ability. Who would win? Now, I think the notion that England would hammer us if that was the case just is not true. That just is not true. Like, the, the idea that all, all the chickens have come home to roost on Saturday, finally England show their true, uh, their true worth and Ireland really show their true level, that's just not true. That, like, that is not uh, an accurate representation of where these two teams are at. Where's your evidence for that? Where's your evidence for that? Well, the evidence over the last couple of years when... But they just beat us with their best players for the first time. First time they've had... So I, what, about, what about when they were going for the slam two years ago? Uh, yeah, we put in a performance that was nip and tuck and then we win 13-9. But right. exa- I'm not, I'm not, I'm not home, saying that this is... At home, this, this, you're this, saying this. a neutral venue, right? And uh, Vinopola, Billy Vinopola came off with about 15 minutes left to go in that game. Whereas he's actually fully fit now to play... So you think England are far better than Ireland? I didn't say far better. I didn't say far better. I do think that... Um, I'm, I'm asking you, you're saying it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous notion... That, that they, they would hammer us again. It, it, like, they were, so we, did, like, the, we lost by 12 points. We really lost by 19. Yeah, like, we did. We scored, we scored a garbage time and then... And then it didn't look like we kind of understood that we could get a losing bonus point if we scored one more time. It was almost like, a, well, in fairness, Sexton clearly did because he took the drop goal um, to take the conversion as quickly as he possibly could. So fair play. There were a few of them were definitely allowed to that possibility. But I, I think that at the moment, England are slightly ahead of us, given full full fitness of both both teams. Now, I don't know what that means because there's no full fitness, but their squad at the moment versus our squad without the bulk of Henderson or the snapping ability of Ty Byrne. Like, it would have been really interesting to see Ty Byrne in that game, right? Yeah. Where they have, what was it, 80 or 60 rooks, whatever I said, 80. And he's getting in on four or five of them and winning two or three penalties. Yeah. We were miles ahead in the penalty count in the first half as well. So, like, a lot of the stuff that we do well was working. Was it 8-1? I don't know. I don't know. Again, uh, being at the game, your access to information, your access to replays is... Absolutely bullshit. You can't. You, it's very hard to know exactly what's happening or why decisions are being made, even when you get the ref mic. Like, like you talk about, it would be nice to see Tyke Byrne involved. Would Chris Farrell have made a bit of a difference? Like a, a big ball carrier in the middle of the park. Like we, Bundy's a big ball carrier in the middle of the park. Yeah, you know, and like Gary Ringrose was, I think, our best player. It was our best player. Yeah. So uh, Bundy's become very important. Like he's he receives and he's a fulcrum for a lot of the stuff that's happening, so they trust him with a lot of stuff. Do you put Chris Farrell straight into that position? And everybody says he's a thirteen. He's not really a twelve. I mean, I don't know. He's he's is Ringrose's hamstring bad enough to that he's not going to play? He's certainly a doubt this week, anyway. Yeah. Well, if he's a doubt, then I wouldn't play him. Like this Scotland game is not the most important game of the year. So just take him out and go off. You go and get well, and stick Chris Farrell in and go. Okay, this is what we're doing. No? Yeah, like it, it depends how bad it is. I, I, I just don't think... It, it's not the most important game of the year. Of course it's not. But it is so important because we, like you do... We have built up uh, a critical mass of experience of actually winning games time and time again. 2018 was that. And one defeat isn't going to derail that. But two might. And three certainly probably would. So I, I think that in terms of keeping... Just getting us back on track a little bit is really, really important, No. Like, do we have the really deep reserves of just being able to turn it on uh, after this season, uh, ahead of the start of the next season, which no, is, of course, the World Cup? No, I, I, I don't know. Like, um, you know, do we need to win the last four games of this to feel good about our chances in the World Cup? Is it going to have an impact in the last ten minutes of the game against Scotland? I don't think it is in the World Cup. I don't, I don't think this game against Scotland has 
that much to do with what happens in the World Cup. It just, by the time that rolls around, different players will be in position, different players will be fit, different players will be uh, picked. It's not nothing to do with Scotland. It could be like it could be France this weekend. It's nothing to do with the fact that we share a pool with them. It is just after what happened last weekend. I, I do think it will compound the legitimate fears that some Irish rugby fans will have this week about Ireland's ability to be at home in the last four in the world. Which, like, I'm not sure if you're reevaluating your take that uh, a rugby World Cup final or is the only acceptable result here. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, like, at least you were, you were saying that we should be going for a World Cup final. Yeah, totally. I think that anything other than that will probably be, and will will always feel to this group of players like they didn't achieve the level of success they could have. And you still hold that view? Yeah. 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 Do you think they changed? Did, like, or, I'm, I'm not saying their, their views changed, but I'm just asking about your view. I, I think that they they uh, got strength and depth and the qualities. It, it comes back now to whether or not our style can evolve in the middle of a game where we're, we're suffering. Yeah, I agree. And that, that comes back to my original point about if you put this England team against this Ireland team in equal conditions. Like, of course, uh, if you play that game in equal conditions in, in any sort of situation last week, England are, are going to batter Ireland. But I mean, over the general scheme of things, we've played 10 times over the course of a year. I, I just don't think that there is a 19-point gap between the teams. Because let's face it, it was a 19-point gap between the teams so, on, on Saturday. Uh, is it 7-3? Is it 6-4? Is it 5-all? Do we win 7? I think... <laughs> Certainly, I'm reevaluating it after the weekend. I think it's 6 4 to Ireland. All right, uh, some comments for you. Maria Sexton couldn't play as our fours were dominated. England almost had a perfect game. That doesn't mean we're a bad team or that Henshaw didn't play well. Bringing Zebo in now or Dunica, dot, 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 um, I presume is um, not going to happen. Look, no one thinks it's going to happen, right? No one believes for a second that Simon Zebo or Dunica Ryan are going to be suddenly parachuted into that squad. But there does come a point where you go, let's give ourselves the best chance of success. And that might for a short window, involve um, an amnesty, a prodigal son style, kill the fatted calf, or the fatted chicken in Dunnick Ryan's case, and uh, away we go. Um, England were reminiscent of a Joe Schmidt team. Nah, I've never seen an Irish team play that good. But keep up the damage control. Hashtag OTBAM from Sir Saxon. I wonder what country he's from. Uh, Atawi Tibble, Atawi Tibble, says... I'm a Kiwi who loves watching OTB. I saw the hype and was sure the Irish would win. England smashed them and were amazing. Usual masters of control like Furlong, Bess, Ryan, POM, Stander, Murray, Sexton were beaten up. 46-9 dominant tackles. English were up for it. Hashtag OTBAM. And whatever Peter Manny says, uh, rugby is generally a wrestling match. And if uh, you're wrestling somebody who wants to kill you and you're like, I kind of like you a little bit, you know, we've become friends then the killer is probably going to win most of those. Yeah, like uh, you were obviously at the game, so you didn't see just the dominant tackle count that was just rising at the bottom. They kept bringing it up at the bottom left of the screen and it just kept ticking over and over and over. And there are some very convoluted phrases when it comes to rugby. But I think anybody anybody who's watching the first game of rugby even would be able to know what a dominant tackle means. And it was just this little niggling thing at the bottom of the screen reminding you how Ireland were getting beaten up. Who's doing those stats and why is that a new thing that has suddenly just been invented? Maybe because the dominant, dominant tackle disparity was so huge. I don't think they would have thrown it up if it was like two all or something. It was like it got to like. When three. did dominant tackle become a thing? Don't know. I don't know. But I guess I guess it kind of tells you a greater picture of how many efforts there has been to cross the gain line and how successful one team has been in stopping you crossing the gain line. Like clean breaks and dominant tackles are kind of two ways of showing which way the momentum of the game is going. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I just don't wonder what the definition of it is and when it became an agreed stat that we all suddenly talking about but anyway let's move on uh, I'm delighted to say Keith Wood is with us this morning Keith good morning to you 
Morning, Ger. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. We're uh, we're licking our wounds here as um, as uh, you know Irish rugby supporters and wondering what the hell happened there. And um, a lot of people are making the case that rugby's a fight, and if you lose the fight, the game's over. Uh, I think that's a fairly perspicacious comment. I'd say about as close as it gets, really. Um, I didn't think we got to the pitch of the game, and uh, England started really, really well. They, they had the most basic and efficient game plan, which was maybe one or two movements of the ball, very little subtlety at all, but done very quickly and with a high level of aggression. And uh, we almost seemed surprised by that. And even from the, the first line out with um, some of our players still running back, um, they used their pace, they used the um, the opportunity to try and turn our players really, really well. And, and like, it was very hard to watch, very, very uncomfortable in the stadium. The, the stadium was quiet and never got going at all. Um, you could have sworn that you were in, uh, uh, in Twickenham, not the Aviva, uh, with the sort of atmosphere that was there. And I, it, it felt as if it infected everybody. Yeah, what can you do if you're Ireland in that situation, you're 15, 20 minutes into the game? What, what should they have done differently to try and arrest the pattern? Well, it's hard when the English defence was, uh, was suffocating an awful lot of what we were trying to do. And we tried to do an awful lot behind the game line. So it was either short pop balls or uh, plays that had subtlety and runners going here, there, everywhere. But the England pack or the England um, defence just seemed to pick off those players. At different stages, you just need to change the momentum. So we tried to change it by kicking um, uh, box kicks, which we've used a very good effect over the last number of years. I felt we overdid it this time around. Um, but actually, England played in the manner in which we would have liked to have played, which is a little dink over the top to find grass, find a place where there isn't a player, um, try and get them to turn, put them under pressure, put the onus on them. Um, I would have said England, with the exception of uh, the chip over the top try that they had at the end, did very little of um, of great skill. You know, They did simple skill and did it really, really well for most of the game. But for the most part, they didn't really put themselves under huge pressure, with the exception of that chip over the top for the try, which was really fast running from very deep. Um, flat passes straight across the line, guys running at a million miles an hour and totally cut us off guard. But other than that, they just put us under pressure by dinking the ball in behind us, by winning the collisions, by putting all our thought processes under pressure. And ultimately, it felt like we had players who haven't played for a while. And we talked about this last week. And I'm not saying we weren't worried. We weren't worried about it because we thought these are guys that can, can do it. But when you look down through the litany of the players, a lot of them hadn't played a huge amount of high-level rugby. Um, and we just seemed to be that tiniest little bit off. And like people would say, it's a huge amount off and we were awful. Um, because England gave us nothing in the whole game, just being that little bit off, proved pretty poor but we need to be far smarter and uh, sharper in attack because we didn't look like we were going to break them down at any stage yeah um that i guess is the most worrying thing you can fix some of the the smaller bits and and certainly you would hope that the players get better with a bit more game time under their belts but the the inability it seemed to respond to what the new challenge and it wasn't even that new or unexpected from 
from England. That's the bit that's most worrying. That that last bit that you just said there was, you know, we didn't look particularly creative. We didn't look like we had an answer to what was a fairly straightforward game plan from England. It was, but it was one that, um, um, whether that's going to be fully sustainable. I mean, when I would compare that to being what Ireland have done in the past, it is one that often pays a big toll for us defensively. Um, that we tend to lose players from it because it is entirely to do with pressure and, and diminishing all risk. That's a tough game to play for a long period of time. And I, I'm, look, I think this is something that we need to make certain we can deal with in the future because if teams do this against us and are as good as England were, and like I've, I've talked to a couple of people that said they didn't think England were great, England were so efficient. So they didn't try a huge amount. It's like going for a dive in a diving board. They they went for the maximum score with the lowest level of risk that they possibly could. So it doesn't mean they're going to get the best score, but it's going to put them into a level of perfection. So they nearly did that yesterday, or on Saturday. So um, we need we need to be able to shake that up a little bit. I felt we became a bit lateral. Um, and uh, like when Johnny takes the ball to the line, he does get smashed. But we are a better attacking team when that happens. Now, not all the time, because a lot of the play that has stood us in very good stead for the last couple of years has revolved around um, the ball being pulled back from a forward to, to Johnny running around and him looking at the myriad options that he has at his disposal then. Those options were taken away at the weekend because of the line speed, um, because of the slowdown just at the tackle from the English, which they weren't rushing in and falling off any tackles. They were they were rushing up, slowing, and making the tackle and stopping the play. So we just need that variation. And I think we I think we do have it, but I just I just don't think we had it on Saturday. Yeah, outside of the injured, Keith, uh, is there any enforced or non-enforced personnel changes you'd be making? Yeah, I, I think you need to see what players are back because what you tend not want to do is to make wholesale changes. And I would go with the sentiment that... Um, uh, what has proven us to be um, to win the number of games that we have in the last year in 2018 to be the best year we've ever had in Irish rugby doesn't mean because we got it wrong or didn't get to the tempo of a game <clears throat> that you make wholesale changes. And we've had this one before where where either our attitude has been off or something is wrong, but or maybe our sharpness wasn't quite right. You can get a lot of that right in a week. You don't have to, to do it entirely. I do think Henshaw comes under pressure um, because uh, much and all as, as Joe Smith was defending him as you'd expect him to do after the weekend. Um, it wasn't that he wasn't in the right place all the time. I thought England were really, really sharp in how they moved him about. Um, but he hasn't played there in a while. And it was when the ball went in behind us, we looked slower. And that's a position we can't really we can't really be in. They looked like the faster players on the field. So when the ball was put into spots behind Henshaw or in the other side of the field away from him, he was trying to get to that point. They seemed to be running onto it faster than we were. And so whether that's his position at play or not, I don't know. But um, I would expect there to to be some pressure there. But I don't know. I, I think you need to look at the game. If there was a, if we play at the weekend and we play at that um, level and we don't get a result, um, I think that is the more likely cause for change than it is for this week. Yes, yeah, so you, you, you allow everybody to make the recovery, to give them the chance to prove that that was a one-off as opposed to <clears throat> something... Well, I think, I think, to be honest, from us as fans, and I know it's just the, the, um, 
the graph for fans' uh, agitation is, you know, is is quite crazy. But we did, these guys deserve it. They've shown us uh, the most fantastic year of all time. This is a new year. They've had a blip. They just they deserve it, and they deserve that from the fans to say, that, okay, we want these guys to get back and play at the level they're supposed to. And if changes have to happen, they should be happening in the coming weeks. But I think they deserve another go. Can I ask you about Roy Best's performance? Because he's come in for some criticism as well. How close or otherwise is it to a situation where he's no longer first choice for Ireland? Uh, I think that's a very, I think it's a really hard call, actually, for, for Rory Best. And I'm a fan, and I think he has done very, very well. I do think he is much slower around the field than he has been. I don't think he is as effective um, as often. And what you have to weigh up with all of that is to what he brings to the team as a captain and has consistently done. Now, we would say with last weekend that there could be a criticism there as well. He deserves the opportunity as well. And we have to see, can we get the most out of him? Um, And is he the guy to bring us to the World Cup? Well, he is if he's fit enough and isn't exposed on the field. Um, I don't think he was exposed on the field. I just don't think he shone last weekend. There's a big difference. Yeah. Okay. The other thing that I just wanted to, to get your take on was um, post match, we saw a picture from CJ Sanders' brother in law that said he played 62 minutes with uh, a multiple fractures, a broken cheek, and an eye socket. It did strike me that while that is heroic and clearly demonstrates, you know, just how much of an athlete he is and uh, how he will absolutely do whatever it takes to get out there. Um, that maybe we should have, for his own benefit, taken him out, particularly by half time when you're in the dressing room, you see the face swelling up. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair call, sir. Um, um, I don't fully know what the story was with it, but um, I know I know for myself that if you feel you can play on and play through it, like I don't know if he knows it was broken or not. I mean, how would you know, really? Um, unless there's bits kind of floating around. Um, but he felt he could play on. And, um, you know, you have to hope that him and the medics would have looked at that. And if they had said, look, it's broken and it's going to cause damage, you're off. Um, there's a different question from that as to whether he can perform or not. Yeah, no, totally. Um, That's why it always know, feels like you need to intervene with players, because you're making the point exactly that the player will always try and play on, if, even if his arm is hanging off. Like the... Well, it, dep- it depends. It actually, not always. As it turns out, um, that's the view that they always will, and the certain guys always will. And I know that there was times in my own uh, life when I absolutely did, and there was times when I absolutely didn't. You know, so um, it's, if he could do the job, then that's fine. You know, that's I know that's a very kind of callous way of looking at it, but that is that is the way that you look at it. And um, if he felt he could, and if the medic felt he wasn't too bad. Well, then that's fine. So other than that, we're, we're guessing. Uh, just one last thing for me, Keith. We were just listening to Alan Quinlan talk about uh, Jerome Garces at the weekend and how he was uh, the worst possible ref for a dogfight in Ireland being in there. Uh, like, uh, as a captain, I wonder, is there anything we could have, that Rory Best could have done differently in terms of chatting to, to Jerome Garces? I only picked up a, a couple of utterances myself, and it seemed he was just typical Rory Best. But is there a different way you might approach a ref like that? No, I'm, he's, I think he is a difficult... Um, Ref and some of the French refs are in in the manner in which they just kind of brush over certain elements because I think it's partly to do with the leagues. All the refs from the different leagues ref in a slightly different way, right? And that becomes part of it. And you need to know how to deal with them at any particular time. Um, they have a huge issue with 
um, French guys have a, hu- have a huge issue with respect and you have to treat them really well with respect. So even when you're complaining, you have to try your damnedest not to show that you're whinging or complaining. You know, it is, it's is—it's a very difficult one. And if even if you remember back to Roman Poit and his ongoing battle with Paul O'Connell that he seemed to have for three or four years and he argued over everything, you know, it's... Um, I don't know. Uh, he didn't seem to want to talk to anybody on Saturday and that makes it very difficult. Keith, great stuff this morning. Thanks a million for joining us. Uh, pleasure. Cheers, James. It's Keith Wood giving us some thoughts in the aftermath of uh, Ireland's humbling defeat against England at the weekend. Uh, all right, let's hear some more from Peter O'Mahony here. Here he is talking about the hurt the Irish side felt after defeat last weekend. 100% we're hurting. Um, you know, Aviv is obviously a place we've we haven't lost in a, in a while. Um, you know, you never look, you never like losing, no matter whether you're playing for Ireland or or your club. But you know, particularly the Aviv is somewhere we made a fortress, and um, you know, certainly that hurts. But you know, the beauty of our our job is, luckily, by being at the last game of a campaign, you can get back out um, if you're given a shot and 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 work hard during the week, train hard, and and have an opportunity to put that right. Um, so, look, I'm not. I'm certainly not going to sit here and say it didn't hurt. It certainly hurts, but we can't be uh, hanging around feeling sorry for ourselves. We've got to, uh, you know, take our review on the chin and um, dust ourselves off and get back in, stuck into the week, because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of rugby to be played between now and the end of the campaign. What's the video review session this morning, um, It's always honest. Um you know, it's been that way for a long time now and guys know know what the story is and you know, look, we, we hold ourselves personally and as as a squad more account more accountable than, than anyone else will. So um you know the the lads are hurting more than anyone. Yeah. So Keith Woods basically saying pretty much let them make amends. Mm. Let them make amends, get out there. Just do your same thing again, except get the win this time. The thing is, like, the injuries are obviously going to force uh, Ireland into picking a fairly new-look team by the sounds of things. There's going to be at least three or four changes, maybe one or two tactics on top of that as well. So it will be a fairly new-look team. Like, the way he's talking there about what England, and the way they approached it, I know there was a, a textual disagreement with your view um, that it was very reminiscent of how Joe Schmidt does approach teams. Just do everything right. Don't try anything that's too crazy, but just do everything right and do it extremely right. And there's a very good chance you'll win the game. Like that, that definitely has the hallmarks from what Keith Wood is saying there of Eddie Jones of a Joe Schmidt team. Yeah, and um, when you're doing it with lads who are bigger than the opposition, it helps. happy days. It helps. When you've got Tuilagi and Billy Vunipola, you can, uh, you, can bully, you, can, you can bully pretty much any team in the world. You really can. We've also got to remember as well that... Uh, like the, it's not they, their performance isn't out of the blue for sure. I, I think our underperformance is a, a shock, but the English performance was not out of the blue. Like you look at them in November, like the week before we played the All Blacks, they probably should have beaten them. They definitely should have beaten them. Um, no, they should have got beaten themselves. Did they soften the All Blacks up for us? <laughs> yeah, that, that was it. That's how it worked. So actually, we need to completely let the air out of the balloon. Is that the one benefit to this? Is that the air is well and truly out of the balloon? Depends how the next few weeks go. Like, the hype is gone. Imagine if we won the championship from here. It would be the exact opposite. The balloon would be bigger than ever. In the face of adversity, world champions in Wade Ireland managed to win the Six Nations. Somehow England blow it from here? But that would be class. Just, just, <laughs> that would just be class for our own enjoyment. Uh, I think Adam was spot on, except for Sexton kicking more. We needed more hard carries if the ball was slow. Just pick it up and ram that line until something gives. 
uh, that's Rob Cavanaugh's point. And, uh, you know, certainly at the game, you're watching, and it's like, oh, we went backwards there. Oh, we've gone back. Hang on a second. We're, we're, we are the one who knocks. Exactly. They're those dominant tackles that are so important. They are, yeah. Uh, the forward should have been told, if you want a break, you've got to make one, because it's not going out the back until we get forward. And if England are going in low off their feet and the ref isn't pulling them, he can't see what happens if we go in over them. Hashtag OTBM. Bruce Thorpe. What a bunch of moaners. After overrating the Ireland team for months, you quite properly got buried by a much better team with enormously accurate and well-organised kicking and collision rugby. And then he continues, something you thought always went right for your lot. Sexton is not a good field kicker and useless when he does not get forward ball. Hashtag OTBAM. Oh, Bruce. Brucey, Brucey bonus. A dish best served cold, I believe. Uh, Tommy McGuire says, we got a well-needed kick in the backside, thought we were unbeatable and that England would be a pushover. Delighted this happened now and not in another World Cup quarterfinal. Hopefully we can recover for Scotland next week. Hashtag OTBM. There was the bang. There was definitely the bang of the Argentina game off this performance, except that it wasn't wide, 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 spectacular running rugby and we weren't shorn of our five best players. There was like, ooh, this is the, I, I haven't felt this way for quite a while. Not even, not even that time when... Um, New Zealand came and brutalised us because like, that was completely different they were cheating they like were deliberately trying to concuss our players that day this was completely different this was like ooh we are the second best team here by not a small like a big big amount not a small a big amount mm. it was like that was no fun uh, when you Henshaw and Conway playing all year at fullback it's a specialist position in kicking and positional sense that Henshaw is not used to says Oasis 1 um, look, I think that the Henshaw thing is really about seeing if he needs to bring how many specialist fullbacks he needs to bring to the World Cup. So, if we get to the World Cup and everybody's fully fit and everybody's in form, Rob Kearney's going to start a fullback. Nailed on. Guaranteed. 100%. I'm, I'm, I'm betting whatever you want me to bet on that. But, if Rob Kearney gets injured, does he need to have a specialist fullback in the squad as cover? Or, so... If Henshaw is a success, then suddenly you don't need Conway or maybe you don't need Addison or maybe you don't need whoever he's thinking about potentially. Or maybe, you know, Jordan Larmer was interesting that he was in the 23. Does that mean that's where he is in his thinking? Like, this is definitely about the chess match of who is in that 31-man squad. Mm. I like, just, just on Jordan Larmer, like, is he definitely a better wing than he is a fullback? Because it definitely seems that the way Joe Schmidt views him, he's been utilised on the wing a bit more. Of, of course, more opportunities in the wing because Rob Kearney's got that position nailed down. Like, when you look at his particular set of skills and the way England approached that game the last day and just looking at that game in isolation, Larmer as a fullback would have been better than Larmer as a winger, no? I don't know. I mean, certainly... Like, so, like the, the main concern we have about Jordan Larmer is under the high ball. And like contesting the, the high ball is much harder than actually just catching clean high ball. That's never really an issue. So the, the less contested you are, which you are as a fullback under the high ball, uh, the better Jordan Larmer is. I don't know. I, I mean, don't know. That's my suspicion. Like I'd say, I'm sure somebody you're saying he's a better winger. I, I, think, I think he could be a better fullback. I, I don't think that case is closed. I don't think the case is closed either, but I know that um, when Leinster wanted to keep Carberry, they wanted to turn him into a fullback yeah. so he could play loads, and they definitely said that Larmer was better on the wing at that point. Final point, Pam Morris, he says, any discussion with the dire atmosphere in the Aviva with the Hino guys and gals? You were there. Hashtag real fans me whole. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that um, it was not a million miles away from Ireland against Denmark when the atmosphere was great, although uh, it was completely empty with about five minutes to go and then it just filled up. 
it's cold for a start and so people stay inside and then they come to their seats because it's freezing but then the first five minutes was great the anthem's good the song is good and uh, and then England score a try and it's game over <laughs> it's like atmosphere wise really yeah yeah so totally it was like swing low swing low swing low swing low it, it was kind of, it, you could actually pick that up on television but you're never quite sure oh yeah and there was there was one maybe when they got back to whatever the lowest the gap was in the first half after the try it was definitely a little bit of, oh, maybe there should be a low lie of the fields. But it was kind of a bit funereal. Mm. People even early with four minutes left to go. Like, I mean, there was a chance, as ridiculous as it seemed, that we could get a losing bonus point. You know, stick around. I mean, stick around. All right, that's all from us this morning on OTVM. The podcast will be soon up over at offtheball.com. You can listen to this show every morning as a radio show if you want. Just uh, go over and hit listen live on offtheball.com or where indeed wherever you get your podcast from Spotify and uh, the uh, podcast app on Apple as well. You can get us on youtube.com forward slash offtheball. Turn on the notifications so that anytime we go live, you'll get a notification. Off the Ball returns tonight from 7 with the football show. Trevor England talking rugby and politics in Northern Ireland. We're back tomorrow morning from 7.45. Kenny Cunningham's going to be in studio. Tom English is going to join us from BBC Scotland to give us the thoughts of, I'm sure, a very, very highly anticipated uh, clash from a Scottish perspective. Because, you know, two years ago, they made our bus be late and they killed us. Who says we can't deal with adversity, eh? See you tomorrow, folks. Good luck. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am.